Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Hello, partygoers, and welcome to episode number 50. That's right, the big five zero. This is episode the number big 50? one, two, three, four, five, okay, six, seven, eight, eight, nine, ten. Wait, wait, I guess I shouldn't do that. It's pretty we long. We can just do five to the power of ten or to the power of five. Okay. Or not to the power of, but not, five times ten. Not episode ten. ten not episode twenty. <laughs> no, okay, no, we're at episode, this is like too much celebration of a number. Yeah. Anyway, we're at episode 50 of the show, folks. It's, a, it's an achievement, though. It's kind of like we've been doing this for two years, although officially that's episode 54. Yes. But let's be let's be uh, not true to the year, but true to the numbers, which yes. is 50 as a anniversary of some yeah. sort. I do think it's interesting that enjoy um, round numbers. We enjoy things that end in zero yeah. or in five. Sure. And we also enjoy things that are in groups of 10 or 50 or 100 Mm -hmm. but none of that is present in our year or our day or our time that's true you know that's true because time we use base 60 Mm -hmm. which is strange it is kind of strange and there's 365 days in a year yeah in a year that's a solar year so it does make sense in terms of actual i mean it's not not perfectly exact of course right so we have to have a leap year and then another adjustment that comes every yeah 20 years or whatever they have to do right. an adjustment but but it's pretty accurate it's pretty accurate so i mean that makes sense mm-hmm. in the sense that it's about a particular time period right why it's divided I into 12 it, is a different why it's divided into 12 is is a different thing <laughs> and also why it's divided into 52 weeks well that's also just completely random right yeah like right like that's week. Yeah. yeah that's yeah seven days mm-hmm. is like nothing sure it's all like numerology seven is the most important <laughs> didn't they originally have 10 months but then what was it caesar and august wanted their own months i guess i don't know which is why september is the seventh not the eighth okay julius caesar okay and he august had, he had... put in july and august for okay themselves. all right yeah, why not sure if you can do that i guess i don't really know if that's the case because there's the different the different calendar right isn't there the gregorian calendar which kind of changed everything uh, that was not adopted by the Orthodox Church, but only by the Catholic Church. And so that's why the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar are mm-hmm. different. I might be inverting which one is which, but right. there are two different. That's why, pe- you know, Ukrainians, for instance, celebrate Ukrainian Christmas two weeks after right. after our Christmas. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, it's not it's not inherent, right? Like, there's no reason. And that's why Chinese New Year is on a different date, too, because they... You yeah, know, it, you could have that. I think there's is a lunar new year though, so there's a slightly different how they how they calculate it. Right. Yeah. No, of course it's all it's but all it's, random. It's all random. Yeah. Like you could say this is today's the new year. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, it's one of the things that kind of like I, I I can understand why people do it the common era just because it takes out the religious element from the dates of years, but at the same time you haven't really taken it out because. Yeah, Even you're if still using the same, you're still using date. the same starting date. That's yeah. right. It's starting with the supposed birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know exactly when that happened, but but someone took the time to count backwards through history. Yeah, they weren't very good with census taking back then. <laughs> they weren't very good. No, they weren't very good. Well, I mean, it's all it's all make ups, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the idea that the Earth is forty five hundred years old is uh, some some monk from the Middle Ages who went through the Bible and like calculated based on 
some, some vague nonsense. notion of time <laughs> when things happened and what what age this would have been at and how yeah. old people were when things this and that so and came up with a number i totally forgot about that the earth is 4500 years old thing how, how could you forget that because it isn't <laughs> yeah, well yeah but uh, no i forgot that that was a thing that people actually believed it's one of those things when people are like oh yeah dinosaurs aren't real and you're like oh oh yeah people believe that <laughs> have you heard someone say that in real life yeah I did. I have met a person who believed in like the the creation of the Earth as 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 uh, as you know the as seven like day creation. Yeah, as, as, as a biblical biblical fact. literalist. Yeah, and what was surprising to me was a no names where they go to our church. Oh, which is a very liberal. Surprising. Yeah, which is a very liberal church. Yes. Very much you know uh, falls out kind of. I guess it's mainstream and not fundamentalist. And then. And yeah, and then they were in a Bible study group with me. Oh, yeah. And that seemed odd, too. And I feel, but they didn't stay for very, they left after right. one, one year because I think they found it very challenging. Yeah. Because basically, when you look at the history of the Bible, you have to deal with the fact that it's, you know, not historical it's necessarily. It's a novel. It's not a novel. I mean, there are historical elements, yeah. but there are also like, mythical it's elements. It's historical fiction. Once again, not quite accurate, but right. it's. Why not? Well, because it does deal with actual history. There were so does historical fiction. Yeah, but it's what's the fic- what are the fictional elements like sort of timelines and things that were like adding in characters that didn't that weren't real or adding in mythical stuff. But like well, a historical yeah, fiction example would be. But I would separate it. See, I would separate it from that because it's not confounding those different things. Right? There are historical parts. Yeah. There are mythical parts. Right. There are parts that are like taken right out of like legend and yeah. from other from other uh, cultures around yeah. them and stuff like that. And then like the flood story, sure, the biggest good example. And then, but you know, there are actual like straight on historical elements to it, like right, like chronicles. Yeah, um, would be an example of where it's just like a retelling of the different kings. Mm-hmm. Now it's told from a religious viewpoint. Yes, and it constantly makes a point in it that if you want the more historical details, you have to go to a different book that unfortunately is lost to us now mm. so there was a concurrent history that was written that was a secular history of the kings right whereas the bible gives us a religious history so a lot of the times it's like but this king was not a good person and so uh, we're not going to talk about so him. no so the so god removed him from power oh okay you know and so it, it'll give like a religious reading to their rule if right. you know what i mean right so so it's still history but it's mm-hmm. through the lens of religious belief right but right? i would make that i would differentiate that from from myth or legend, mm-hmm. because I would agree there are mythical elements to it. Of yeah. course, the Adam and Eve story is obviously a creation myth, and mm-hmm. and Noah's Ark is a myth, a borrowed myth, but but then interpreted in a in a in a Jewish way for, right. for the Old Testament. Those are mythical stories. Um, but you know the story of of the um, Moses and parting the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, and all those sort of things. Well, which is more of a mistranslation than it is right than it is a, a mythical part of yeah. story. Like it's the Reed Sea mm-hmm. in the original book. It became, but because people when they were looking, they're trying to they're trying to be historical too. That's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. When they were doing, I can't remember the name of the guy when he was doing the Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible. Like he actually did research. Like he'd go back and he'd look at things. He would check out like images and stuff like that. But they were misleading. Well, yeah. And that was a problem, right? He's like looking at a map. He's going like, the Reed Sea. Well, there's a Red Sea. So that right. must be what they're talking about. Yeah. Pro- not a marsh mm-hmm. where the water was already kind of low anyway. And people yeah. were just running across it. Yeah. No, no. This is this is the Red Sea that yes. was, you know, this, you know, 100 foot deep body water that was split, 
you know, separated by, you know what I mean? So those are sort of things of like that, or the appearance of unicorns in the, in the Saint or the King James Bible. Right. Mistranslation of like rhinos. No, oryx, which are a type of oxen. Oh, okay. But because the images of them were all from the side. Right. They were written as one horned creatures yeah. in the Vulgate. And then mm. King James translated that as unicorns. Interesting. Well, yeah, it's like when, um, when Columbus mm-hmm. was sailing, he, all that he had with him was like, he had like two books. Okay. And one was, um, Marco Polo's yeah. stories of going to oh, by land. Asia by land, <laughs> at, like two hundred years prior, <laughs> yeah. and then the other one was also much older, and it was from a guy who had never left England, writing about traveling and coming across all these mythical monsters. <laughs> And so when Columbus was going, he was yeah. like looking for all these giants. <laughs> yeah. He's like, "Where's all these giants that I'm expecting to see?" Yeah, right? Yeah. But yeah, they didn't actually believe that the world there was a, a no. A, I no, they didn't actually believe the world was flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think that's an important thing to say that the idea of flat Earth belief is stems from the Victorian era and was really a. a a rereading onto the Middle Ages by snobby Victorians who just wanted to put down the Middle Ages, right? And so they would just attribute all this, you know. Uh, basically slander about the middle yeah, ages sure. as sort of pumping up their own uh, tires mm-hmm. and yeah so then you get people like uh, gk chesterton who spent a lot of time trying to like demythify demythify the uh the right, middle ages the flat earth idea yeah but yeah one one interesting idea of uh incredible historical wrongness that i came across was the other day i was doing a presentation at work yeah with the residents about his it was like a historical presentation for fun yeah and I was talking about the history of Upper Canada, which yeah. is like Ontario. Sure. But I was like, well, before I talk about this, I'm just going to give like a little bit of background into the history of Canada, right? Yeah. And I said, Canada has been inhabited for at least 14,000 years. Yeah. And one resident said, Christopher Columbus was the first person to come to Canada. <laughs> and I said, no, he was not. <laughs> and it totally blew my mind. I was like... Well, peop- oh, man. Well, isn't that what Columbus Day is celebrating, though? Is ce- not coming to Canada, but the idea that he came to America, which he did not. No, he did not come to America. I was yeah. like, like, how wrong could you be? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I didn't, I guess, I guess I'm kind of, I guess I'm privileged from having a history degree and spending <laughs> a lot of, spending like six years studying history with a bunch of people who have like a similar level of interest and knowledge in history and yeah. like being in a relationship with someone who also got a history degree and like... <sighs> I, just lo- I just looked at him i said no <laughs> no we did not christopher columbus sailed like so many thousands of years after yeah. the americas were already inhabited like well, uh, i mean the americas were inhabited when the first nations people came here they were already inhabited by their people so what well clovis man was here before the uh before Native Americans crossed the land bridge. Clovis man? Oh yeah. yeah. Um yeah, like oh man, it's just so it's just so bonkers. <laughs> the idea of that there wasn't anyone here until five hundred years ago, you know? But Well, they mean just... they mean white people. No, I I know they mean white people, <laughs> but yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's the old reading, dear. I know. But I mean I think even now I don't want to get into this too much, but I think even now we have a... This is judging from your reaction to when I brought up Clovis Man. Mm-hmm. Well, is, 
the idea that there was no one here at all before. No, it's, it's just that a lot of the ideas of Clovis people have come in under scrutiny recently. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but like we don't have to get into all of that, but there is a lot more recent historical evidence showing that um, inhabitation of the Americas came about uh, maybe as far back as 28,000 years ago by boat yeah. from Africa okay, and also from Asia on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would have been like the same groups of people mm. and a Clovis man would have also been the same groups of people. It's just that when they found that, they thought like, oh, well, they couldn't have gotten across the ice by that point. Okay. So it would have have to be, have been different groups of people and it would have been different groups of people, but not like an earlier type of person. Mm. It would have still been the same groups of people coming from the same areas. Just oh, I see. I see. At just a different, different time. Different, and yeah. different routes. Yeah, and different routes. Yeah, yeah exactly. But we don't have to get into all that. So I only know about Clovis Man because that's where Buddy Holly recorded a bunch of his. Oh music yeah, and yeah, and like Clovis, this, <laughs> this stuff is like very recent, like 1990s archaeological findings. Oh, okay, recent, okay. like they're still finding a lot of it today. Mm. Um, and so like even when I was taught in elementary school and high school, like they still weren't getting into that stuff just because it is so new. I only learned about it in university. Okay. Huh. Yeah, because it's just like super super new evidence about it mm. as people are like. Because the other thing is as, um, yeah, just as people are, like, spending more time reaching shorelines along coasts, they're yep. finding stuff that's leading back, like, to go. Hmm. It's just kind of, it's also kind of, like, really radical in that it's ideas of technology that was not thought possible at the time. Yeah. Right? People coming across uh, on boats. Yeah. So it's, like, apparently archaeologists stuff. Oh, really? As much as they can. Huh. Which is more like people going up, I have a rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fights. Scientific fights. Yeah, scientific of being like, well, this person wrote this paper that said that, but I'm going to say this instead. Yeah. <laughs> I find those... That's true. It's funny. It's the same thing with evolution. Like, we ha- we all have a very simplified view of evolution, I think, at this point. Uh, you know, Darwin, blah, 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 Darwin, this, Darwin, that. And then yeah. you, when you look into actual evolutionary science like a lot of darwinian ideas have been pushed pushed out the window oh yeah and but we're still kind of stuck in like a early 20th century view of evolution because this Mm -hmm. goes you know who can keep up with all this stuff but also there's so many changes and so many new developments because of genetic genetic understanding dna dna testing and things like that Mm -hmm. have changed how we how we view a lot of this stuff and i think one thing that um covid science has really been showing people is that people don't like to think that science is ever wrong right like when something like like because people are seeing science in real time more than they ever have before yeah yeah. right it's sort of like people don't like to think like oh like when people learn something that is scientific they like to think like that's that that's it and it will never change (laughs) right and like but it's like you know science and history and archaeology we have to always keep exploring things and coming up with new ideas and improving on stuff because if we don't then we'll never really know, right? Like things will always be improved on. But um, yeah, I think people don't often want to have to think about that, right? You don't often, and you don't often have to. Mm-hmm. Also, you don't often have to think about the fact that like maybe the things that you learned at one point were wrong, you know? Like I don't ever have to think about like, oh, maybe that science I learned in grade eight wasn't accurate because I don't care. <laughs> but yeah. Huh. How can we, we left sociology out of your uh, list of uh, sciences? Oh, mm. I guess because I don't think about it very much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a name for sociology or a description of sociology. Mm-hmm. You ready? Uh, it's the, it is the prediction of things that have already happened. Oh, yeah. I was going to call it general studies. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was military. Anyway, everyone, I'm David Dedrick. And I'm Mary Dedrick. And this is a listening party. 
I don't think we we quite got to that point in our before no, we interrupted we ourselves. Oh, because we started talking about dates and stuff. <laughs> That's right. And we got we into got the fifties and, and blah blah blah. Yeah. Well, whatever. So yes, this is the listening party. This is the show where Mary and I nominally talk about music. Sometimes we get sidetracked. I know it's hard to believe. Yes. That we get sidetracked, but Mary, this is this is our fiftieth episode. We have, despite last week's uh, kerfuffle. We, I pr- prefer kerfuffle. Okay. If you want disaster, that's, you know, I don't know, it seems different ideas of ex- yeah. extremities, but yeah. okay. You, uh, I, I'll go with a softer kerfuffle. You can right. go with the disaster. Yeah, we lost the original show for last week and had to duplicate it very carefully, word for word, from, yeah. from memory. <laughs> but other than that, it's, uh, you know, we've done 50 shows um, pretty much nonstop. I think you missed one show due to illness. He filled in for you. Yes, I had... The worst flu of my life. Okay. Last, I think that was January 2019. Okay. Okay. I completely lost hearing in one ear for a month. Oh, wow. Um, I was like in bed, couldn't get out of bed for like three days straight. Yeah. Like sleeping all the time. And then I had, yeah, just like a really bad, really, really congested for like two weeks. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. It was not fun. It doesn't sound fun at all. I was fine. So I did the show with Eve. Uh, but yeah, so this kind of shows our ability to endlessly blather. Yeah, that's true. What we're good at. What are we good at? Blathering. So um, do you want to start the, the mixtape, Mary? Do I want to start the mixtape? Yeah. Do you want to start talking about it? Well. Or do you have anything oh. further to add? No, I don't have anything further to add. Okay. I thought you meant, sorry. Yeah, no, I want to start talking about the mixtape. Okay. All right. I, yeah. I don't know what the first song is. I don't, <laughs> how can you not know what the so first song know. is? Uh-huh. I just have here number one. You didn't send me the track listing. I did. Nope. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Send it for the first side. No, nope, send it for all of it. You can look at me suspiciously, but I sent you all of it. I can't help it if you don't look back at your messages. Are you looking on your phone to see if I did? Yes. Are you Are you researching? Yep. Are you just doubting your father, your very own father, the man who, who raised you from a little infant, that he could hold his head in your arm, in his hands, and your body rested on his forearm till your bum touched his elbow. Oh, you did send it. The crook of my arm. That's right. I sent you all of it. Isn't that amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that's funny. (laughs) So at any time you could have looked at it, but that's that's okay. You've uh, said before that you don't like to know what's coming, so you can judge it judge it without prejudging it. Yes, without any any bias. Although you did write to me and ask me about one of the songs in this, but we'll get to that. Yes, I don't want to pre emptively talk about a song right let us start mary where i like to start personally because i have which ocd is with the first song which is with the first song that's right I oh, like we're to not gonna the shuffle beginning. play on no this. we're not gonna shuffle play we're not gonna use netflix's new shuffle oh, play option I, no i'm starting to get sick feeling oh oh going out of order oh dear <laughs> land sakes i need a fan i think i just want to say one thing quickly yeah. about netflix's new shuffle play option sure which i think you love it rather like playing shuffle or pressing shuffle on your on your iPod when you're in all songs, it should do that with TV shows yeah. and just shuffle up all the episodes. Oh, that sounds terrible. No, it sounds hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but if what if you haven't seen it? Ah, Suddenly wa- start watching it. the third episode of some program yeah, you've never seen before. Skip it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to choose from. Yeah. And I guess that's. I mean, you do kind of get you do kind of get algorithmed up your own behind. Mm-hmm. With Netflix and True. everything else. So Netflix particularly. You know what's funny is we have a work Netflix account mm-hmm. because we visit a couple times a week on Saturdays. Okay. okay. And um, it's so funny how vastly their suggestions are than mine. Like opening <laughs> up that Netflix is like a totally different Netflix than mine is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because... It's for old people. Wouldn't you be better off with Disney Plus? 
than with Netflix? No, they didn't really like animated stuff. Oh, I was thinking more like the old movies. Oh, yeah, maybe. The, the Million Dollar Goose, whatever it's called. And... No, I just feel like there's more options on, there's just more stuff on Netflix, yeah, more content. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, enough of that, Mary. Let's talk about this mixtape, which okay. I believe we mentioned last episode was made for Ken Painter. And I had no I had no uh, brief. I was given no instruction. So it was just a mere whatever they wanted. Is it right. I was going to guess the Japanese name for that. So what people do in Japanese restaurants where you ask for the, um, you know, just whatever is on the menu randomly. But oh. I don't know what it is. and I would Shuffle. Just... Shuffle, that's shuffle right. Shuffle play. The shuffle play. So can I get the shuffle play, please? That's what you say. Yes. And then you start off with uh, Freddy Scott. Oh, I thought you were going to say with an onigiri. <laughs> What's onigiri? Uh, it's like a, it's actually pretty good. Okay. Um, but it's like roasted, or not roasted, deep fried octopus. Mm. Like button. Can't. I have a hard time with that. Okay. Oh, mayo. Sounds pretty good with mayo. Uh, yeah. So let's. Oh, no, wait. wait. What? Changing your mind? Oh, you have to look it up on your phone now, Mayor. All right. Well, while you're doing that, let's listen to let's listen to Freddie Scott and his song "Are You Lonely for Me." This came out in 1967. Everybody, here we go. Thank you. 
All right, and we're back. And Mare, can I just say quickly? Sure, Mare. You have a give a correction. Yeah, I was describing takoyaki. Okay. But what I was talking about onigiri yeah. is actually um, it's just rice. Oh, it's just rice. It's just rice, but in like a little triangle. Oh, okay. And then you can put like sweet around it as like a lure. Uh huh. And then you put like something in the middle of it, like um. I see. Duncan miss. Okay. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, um, what did you think? Oh yeah, they're cute. What do you think of Freddy Scott? Uh, I thought it was, it was fine. That was fine? Yeah. Just fine? Just fine, yeah. Not great? No, just fine. Not as much as I like this song, which is, I like it a lot? Not as much, sorry. Wow. It's so good, though. It was fine. Wow, okay. <laughs> huh. I'm shocked, Bear. Sorry, Dad. Shocked and surprised. Sorry, Dad. Because, I don't know, Freddie Scott is one of those black singers, one of those singers from the 60s, 50s, 60s, and it seems like there's a lot of them where they just like recorded forever right and just it took them forever to like find that little spot oh to like succeed you know right so he started Not someone like dion warwick long yeah but even dion Dion warwick sang for a while um as a back backing singer and stuff like that but she was pretty lucky she mean she fell in with burt Bacharach and hell david who were like just on the brink of their hot streak Mm -hmm. and she really got to benefit from that you know and so you look back at her her song, you know, her singing career is mostly Backrack and David songs. There's a few that aren't, but right. but most of them, you know, most of her big hits were, were written by yeah. them. And she, she would, you know, she was sort of their pet singer as well. Mm-hmm. She, they had a few other singers as well that they used a lot, like Chuck Jackson and right, who they would like write a lot of songs for. And mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, she was, she was definitely the, <laughs> definitely got the well, lion's share. Well, she's very good, yes. Um, but yeah, so like every other gospel or every other soul singer we've ever talked about in this show, starting gospel. gospel, he sang in his grandmother's gospel group, Sally Jones and the Gospel Keys, that for whatever reason, whatever reason was spelled as K E Y E S. Yes. I can only yeah. think of it as a reference to Daniel Keys, the writer of Flowers for Algernon. Probably. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. Uh, he even got to tour England when he was 12 years old. Oh, wow. It's pretty cool. He then left that group and went to university or college. Uh, where he studied medicine, studying to be a doctor. He studied at the University of Rhode Island and then at Payne College, which is a well-known black college in in the southern United States. But it was there, this college, that he started singing uh, with another gospel group called the Swanee Quintet Juniors. And I guess it sort of awakened his performing bug. And so he quit his schooling mm-hmm. and he became a gospel singer. Where is he from again? He's originally... I don't know where he's from, actually. No. I didn't... I forgot to check that. I think he was from, like, Freddie Scott. I don't know if he's from Providence, because he went to Rhode Island school, uh, college, but... Oh, yeah. Okay. And so... That sounded right, but I just don't want to guess it. So, yeah. And so, like many others, inspired by Sam Cooke, who was, like, one of the very first gospel singers who, to everyone's outrage and shock, left gospel singing to become <gasps> a... Oh, my gosh. No. Land sakes... Clutch My Pearls, a, a secular singer. And so his move was very brave at the time, but that kind of caused a little wave of other, other you know, singers who right. were singing gospel. Who when had, about would that have been? 1956. Okay. Sam, Sam Cooke uh, moved, left the Solsters and be, started singing secular music. And so that was the same year that Freddie Scott left his, his gospel group and started signed to a, a label called J&S. And he put out a, a song on that, but didn't really catch on. And then in late 1956, he was called up for military service. Oh, and that's always good for someone's career. <laughs> well, luckily he hadn't started yet, so he was. 
And fortunately for him, although he did was posted in Korea for a while, this was three years after the war. So he oh. merely did what my dad, your grandpa did, which was to be a uh, border guard on the right. in the DMZ in uh, in South Korea. And then he uh, he came, uh, and so during his military service, he put out uh, he kind of label hopped from the tiny bow and arrow records label to the short lived Enrica label. And then you know I guess he realized that with such this wasn't not he wasn't catching on. You know, he put out singles here and there, but it wasn't really working for him. So he decided to concentrate on songwriting. So he joined Aldon Music, which was the publishing company run by El Nevin and Don Kirshner, who we've talked about before in the past. Don Kirshner, you know, was the he was the musical director for the Monkees, mm-hmm. and then later became the musical director for the Archies, and probably had a hand in the Partridge Family and stuff like that. He was just, but he. He and his his partner El Nevin they they were had a Brill Building songwriting company at that time that had a lot of well known songwriters including Jerry Goffin and Carol King and so they would you know produce music for various singers for groups and whatever and so he teamed up with a writer she been she was a longtime writer songwriter named Helen Miller they teamed up together and they wrote songs for Eldon uh, he also sang demos okay and then he became very briefly a producer for aretha franklin's sister irma franklin so before her career kind of took off he produced a lot of tracks for her in 1961 and he also recorded for this label called the joy label then in 1962 he had a kind of lucky break because fellows aldon songwriters jerry goffin and carol king needed help with a song they hoped to pitch to chuck jackson called hey girl then when jackson couldn't make it to the session Scott recorded the song instead because they already had this time set up. They had the musicians there and they right. needed someone to do, get, they needed to make some products. So he sang it. And so a year later, it was released on Colpix, which was a weird kind of a label that was owned by Columbia Records. And it was a com- it combined with the TV movie company Screen Gems. And so they took coal from Columbia and picks from pictures, mm-hmm. as in Screen Gems pictures, right. and made Colpix. And so they released the single, and it was a hit. It was a top 10 hit on both R&B and on the pop charts, cool. which is pretty good. That's great. He had a little bit more success at Colpix. He did a kind of slowed down version of a Ray Charles song, I Got a Woman. Unfortunately for him, though, unfortunately for him, Colpix was, the label was kind of falling apart. Oh. The, man, the management of the label was having issues, and there was some fighting with Columbia, and right. the whole enterprise was kind of breaking down. And actually, it would be closed entirely. It was, the whole label would be closed down in 1966. And Columbia would start a different one called Coal Gems, which again, a combination of Columbia with Screen Gems, right. Coal Gems Records. And that was became the home of the monkeys when the monkeys oh, started. Cool. And so, yeah, just in time for the monkeys to begin, they started Coal Gems. But, and that was in 66. So pretty close to the monkeys beginning, I think, in 67, the monkeys oh, started. Okay. Yeah. So then he was moved to Columbia Records. Now, Columbia was, at that time, the most unhip label right in all of of all of american recording yeah. like they they blew it with aretha franklin that's how unhip they were they could take one of the greatest singers of all time miss marketer you know put point in the wrong direction as song she should do oh. and you know just kind of produced a lot of lukewarm material before yeah. she left them and went to atlantic to become a superstar it's like failing with the beatles yeah exactly and so they did sort of the same thing with with freddie scott though they took freddie scott and they turned him into a crooner Mm, and so yeah so and what year was this sorry this was in uh, 66 yeah 
Or 65, sorry, 65. I don't know. I'm no expert, but I feel like the time of crooners was kind of passed it was, by 1965. It's not that it was passed by 1965, but I think I think as a black market, it probably was. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think people were more interested in soul and R&B by this point and not right. so much in like right. you know, the R&B and soul had already... They were like getting more popular. They were getting more popular mm-hmm. and the idea, like so someone like Frank Sinatra, you know, like or Dean Martin. Uh, Tony Bennett, Dean Martin, people like that, they still had a market. right. But I think it was kind of. It would I feel like it was fading a bit at that point. It was right? a diminishing like, market, yeah. I mean, they were still played on the radio. Yeah. And in those days, radio was different than it is for us now. Like it wasn't as segmented as we have right. now. Like at that time, the Beatles would be played, Frank Sinatra would be played, mm-hmm. Acker Bilk would be played. So it end up with all these weird. You know, you go from you know rock and roll to, to crooning, to, crooning to... to easy listening, right. to maybe some maybe some country and western. Yeah. You know, and it would play all sorts of things, right? And so, and if someone like Freddie Scott got into the pop charts, then you would also hear a song like "Hey Girl," right, uh, in that mix as well. So you get like this, and in a way, it's kind of appealing, mm-hmm. but also it would have been frustrating as a kid who maybe was interested in Beatles. Yeah, and you're like having to listen to all this crooning and country <laughs> western music. All oh. the stuff for your parents. Yeah, yeah. That's how you'd view it. This is old person stuff. Exactly. Because again, you know who loves crooning? The residents at my work. <laughs> Except for the ones who call it rock and roll. <laughs> it's even the crooning's too much for them. Yeah. Frank Sinatra, that is secular music. That is the devil's music, sir. True, it is. Uh, but by that point, you know, even though the maker fell flat, and then they tried to return him to his like deep soul style, it was sort of too late at Columbia. Like he's already, you know, people were not interested in what he was producing there. So he left the label. And then a while later, he was signed to Shout Records, which was a new soul label, uh, a subsidiary of Bang Records that was started by Burt Burns, best known for writing, uh, well, Twist and Shout, for instance, would have been one of it was probably one of his best known songs. He oh, wrote, okay. Here Comes the Night. He wrote a lot of songs. Pieces of My right. Heart for Emma Franklin. Like he was a real songwriter, but he also was label runner. Uh, he he signed Van Morrison from them and and and. Uh, you know, produced Brown Eyed Girl for Van Morrison. Like he was, cool. you know, kind of a real producer, real music guy. And so he and Scott wrote Are You Lonely Now? Or sorry, Are You Lonely For Me together? And Scott recorded it. Apparently, it took over 100 takes. 100 takes for him to get the vocals wow. to their satisfaction. It wasn't just for Burt Burns' satisfaction, but even right. to Freddie Scott. Like they just wanted this song to be hmm. spot on, to have that super gutsy, deep soul sound. Like that's what they really wanted it to have. Cool. And he was backed up on the song by the Sweet Inspirations. Okay. Speaking of Dionne Warwick, former member of the Sweet Inspirations. Oh, nice. She and her sister, Dee Dee Warwick, were both in it because their aunt, Sissy Houston, was the founder of... Sissy Houston, who's the mother of, of Whitney Houston. Oh, really? She was the... F- wait, wait, wait. Dionne yeah. Warwick is, is Whitney Houston's aunt? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yes. Soul-singing soul royalty. Yeah. Or no, I guess not aunt, but... I don't know how she'd be. So she was... Second cousin? Once removed? Yeah, I guess, because her mom would have been... Because, like, what would I be to one of your cousins? I have no idea. I don't understand any of that stuff. Me neither. But, like, that's (laughs) what the relation would be, I guess. It's weird. See, I'm from the Dedrick family. Yes. Where, as you know... We see each other once a year. Family means nothing. Yes, true. And so all that stuff about, like, people being related to you in vague ways... Yeah. I have no knowledge of that, because I barely even know my own family that are, like, directly related to me. I feel like... aunts and uncles. I do feel like that, all that, like, second removed, a second uncle once removed or whatever, I feel like that is only used theoretically, because I feel like you are either a family that never sees your family, Mm -hmm. or you're so close where everyone is a cousin or an aunt or an uncle. (laughs) You know? Well, yeah, it's just official names for things. Yeah. But yeah. Like I used to tutor for 
um, a family and they they were First Nations, but it was like, oh, that's my cousin because I was tutoring three different families and they were all cousins. And I was like, oh, so like, is your mom or your dad related to his mom or his dad? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I was like, wait, but your cousins. And I was like, oh, I guess it's just family, you know, Hmm. just like however you define family, right? I doubt that uh, for First Nations people, they have the those kind of distinctions, a second cousin, yeah. or first cousin and stuff. That's probably strictly yes. something that English uh, people brought to the table. Yeah. Excuse me. <coughs> but I feel like I know other people, too, who it's just it's all aunts and uncles and cousins, you know? I don't know if people actually call, like, oh, this is my second aunt or whatever, second cousin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Sissy Houston would have been the aunt of Dee Dee and Dionne Warwick, Mary. Yes, and the mother of Whitney Houston. Mother of Whitney Houston. So she would have been... So she would have been Dion Warwick's aunt. So then Dion Warwick would have been, yeah, I guess a second cousin. I guess that makes sense. But also uh, in the group was Judy Clay. You know the song uh, Private Number? With William Bell. That's right. That's right. And then Doris Troy, who, of course, best known for the song Just One Look. Oh, okay. Just One Look. You know the song. Yeah. So there we go. And that's all I'm going to say about Freddie Scott. And I'm sorry you didn't like it because I think it's a very good song. And Mary, for you. Yes. I did not like it. I For you, he sang it 100 times. Well, not just for me, but... Yeah, but you're one. He's thinking about you when he did it. Dee Dee Warwick's full name yeah. is Delia. Ah, uh, Delia. Okay. Hmm. All right. Uh, do you want to hear a second song, Mayor? Yes, I do. All right. So we're going to go from 1967 all the way to 1995. It's quite a jump in time. And all the way. A little jump in uh, in in uh, style as well. This is Mike Watt, former bassist for Minutemen. So we have a bit of a punk American punk, American hardcore uh, uh, line lineage here, but this is from his solo album "Ball Hog or Tugboat" mm-hmm. from 1995. This is against the 70s. This is our second song that was against a decade. Yes, we have with the de- other one being Denim's "I'm Against the 80s." Yes, and I like bo- I love both songs. I, right. just, I like the idea of writing off a whole decade. I think that's I hilarious. I also <laughs> like that because that's what I have done to the 80s. <laughs> this song though is writing off the whole 70s. This is against the 70s from 1995. Everyone, let's give it a listen. Thank you. 
speaking as a child of the 70s. How much did you love this song? Okay, so I the song by yeah. Denim. I'm yeah. against the '80s. Yeah. I do not like the song, yeah. but I agree with the sentiment. Sure, because I'm not a big fan of the '80s. Yeah, yeah. This song, yeah. I do like the '70s, yeah. so I don't agree with the sentiment. Yeah, but I do like this song. Hmm. I don't think the song is so much against the '70s, though. I think it's it's telling kids of the '90s that they have to create their own culture. Yes. And forget about forget about what old people tell them. No, is I would important. I would agree with that. And I think that is good advice. Yes. And I do feel I like I would uh, give that advice to people today who very much um laud the 90s <laughs> as a very very cool great thing. <laughs> and I think that I do feel like there is a major shift in in ideology uh between kids of my generation Mm -hmm. who aren't boomers who aren't like a boomer generation gen Gen xers like my generation um and the following generation the 90s kids millennials yeah so kids who grew up in the 70s and kind of got drank from the same poisoned well yes that poison well was gone for the kids of the 90s right and i do think that's and hopefully i don't think this song is responsible for that but i think that this song is part of the attitude that that would have led to that you know because i do feel like it's really interesting, but there are such. Oh, I remember I was someone was telling me a story of they, got a bunch of guys were starting up their own podcast company network, and yeah, their own network, right? right. Like Gimlet or like Gimlet, but it's not Gimlet, but it's one of one right, like that. yeah. And they're having like a a meeting, like an orient, like a strategy meeting, right? And they're coming up with like a uh, what do you call want to call it like a um like a not a an ethos or a company. You know what I mean? Like a oh, like, like a, a mission state, statement? Mission yeah, a mission statement, statement yep. yeah. And one of the things... All, I think all nonprofits have to have those, okay. or at least every nonprofit I've worked for has had a mission statement. Sure. And this was this is a profit. This was for profit, this yeah. company. But, you know, still need like an j- overarching right, idea, idea to your company so yeah. that you are you have some sense of direction. And one of the questions that came up was, how do we feel about selling out? And so that was going around the table amongst all these guys, yeah. the idea of selling out. And then this young 24-year-old guy says, what is selling out? Right. Like he had no idea what that meant. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's so good because the whole idea of selling out or selling out or not selling out is such a poison pill Mm -hmm. that was eaten by my generation for sure. Because we, not only did we have like the 60s as exemplars, but we also had the punk ethos of Mm -hmm. DIY and, you know, stick it to the man and all that garbage. 
And so all that kind of poisoned our view of ourselves. So like for someone like Ian and I and a show like Sneaky Dragon, you know, we have such a ambivalent, at, you know, relationship to the idea of advertising right. and selling out yeah. and all that stuff because we grew up in, you know, we came through indie comics mm-hmm. and indie filmmaking and all that stuff yeah. right and so the idea of do it yourself yeah and... elliot smith was selling out when he signed up with dreamworks yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly right yeah. yeah and and it's just such a it's it's such a poison pill because no one who says that ever actually believes it yeah or it makes money yeah because all, like because... all those 60s guys who are all like talking about the man and all that stuff i don't care who they were jefferson airplane with yeah up against the wall and all that stuff yeah i mean that's just so much bs because they were like taking from the pocket of the person they were criticizing yeah you know? like they're those guys are paying the money to criticize them mm-hmm. and i guess it's okay to be a court jester but let's not mistake it you know as some sort of moral yeah moral stance and so the problem like i say for 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 the kids who grew up with that kind of like uh thinking in the background of their minds is is yeah is this very ambivalent relationship to the idea of art and money mm-hmm. you know when the reality is you should get paid for your art oh yeah totally. you know and it doesn't devalue your art for it to have a monetary value mm-hmm. and it hurts me to say that because i really don't believe that when i'm saying those words right because i'm so embedded in that in that in that thinking so it's very hard when you take things in internal and internalize them it's very hard to to get rid of them yeah but that's what i like about this song is that is that break is that you know and only is it a break it's like a it's like a fiercely stated break it's not like a soft you know middle of the road you know rock song telling right. us you know it's like a it's like a hard yeah. exciting they're taking know, a stand it's taking a stand exactly and i think mike watt you know is coming at it from a real place of honesty as well because he is he was or he was like a punk rocker of of that old school you know like he he started uh, he was a bass player, and he started in this really influential San Pedro-based punk band called The Minutemen, uh, which he started with his childhood friend, whose name was D. Boone, D, just initial D. I don't know what his real name was. I don't think it was Daniel. And maybe it was David. But anyway, he just called himself D. Boone, so I always respect that. And uh, the drummer, George Hurley. And they they had a pretty good career. They They did about, I think they did about five albums. Okay. And then, unfortunately, Boone was killed in a car accident with oh, his girlfriend no. while they were traveling in Arizona. And so that was like such a wipeout, particularly for Watt, because this is a person he knew since he was 13 years yeah. old. And they played music together in all that time. And also for Hurley, because he'd been with these guys for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. And they were both like, well, that's it. We're just going to quit music because well, there's no point in carrying on. Yeah. And then Sonic Youth heard about this. And so they convinced Watt to come out to New York City mm-hmm. and play with them, stay with them and play with them. Oh, that's good. And so he played bass with them on this kind of weird Madonna-based project they did called Chicone Youth, where they covered Madonna songs okay. in a kind of a punk, alt-rock kind of way. Right. And then he did a couple songs on their album, Evol, mm-hmm. which is Love Backwards. And and so he... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he contributed to, to, to some bass stuff to that album as well. And so that kind of got him back into thinking about music. And then uh, this guy named Ed Crawford, mm-hmm. who was f- uh, from Ohio. I wonder, sorry, quickly. I wonder if, I think joining, being able to join another band was probably really good for that, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm sure like someone who loves music that much wouldn't want to stop altogether. Yeah. But I can totally see how hard it would be to continue on playing with like the same name yeah. and the same lineup. Like you'd always be thinking about 
your friend, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, and also just sort of as a break from your band mm-hmm. to be with another band and and to kind of fit into that chemistry yeah. as a way to break as a break as well. Just mm-hmm. a, just a way to uh, you know you're still doing music, but your mind isn't on on your former band. Yeah. So yeah, so this kid from Ohio named Ed Crawford, his friends tricked him into thinking that the Minutemen were were looking for a new guitar player. And he was a super big Minutemen fan. He was such a big fan. That's why his friends tricked him with this. Right. So he literally drove from Ohio to San Pedro. Oh, my God. To re- to, to audition. Uh, audition for this role yeah. in the band to discover that they were not interested in him oh. playing, playing with them. And he ended up camping out in San Pedro, you know, harassing... Watt and Hurley right. trying to get like an audition with him and finally convinced them to hear him play, yeah. hear some of his songs. And so he played for them and they're like, you know what? You're actually pretty good. You know, we're not going to do the Minutemen, yeah. but let's form a new band. And so they formed a new band called Firehose. Okay. And, and uh, the, um, yeah, so they started off very, you know, and here's the thing. There's an expression that the Minutemen used and Mike Watt still uses to this day, which is we jam a cono. What that means is we do everything as cheaply as possible. Okay. Everything is done because we don't have a lot of money. We're a we're a punk rock band. Yeah. And we're signed to SST Records, the most notoriously cheap record label of all time. Right. Many artists still waiting to get paid for the albums they did for them in the 80s. Oh, no. So, because they would just turn all the money back into other bands. Right. They'd be like, hey, man, this is a cooperative. Yeah. You know, you want other bands. You want us to be able to record other bands, don't you? And other bands are like, I guess, but yeah. also I'd like to get paid for my records. <laughs> but anyhow, so so they they still stayed signed to SSD. They continued on as Firehose on SSD. Right. But uh, probably, but you know, it was very, uh, very low. Like uh, for about nine months, Ed Crawford slept under a desk in, in Mike Watt's apartment. <laughs> and that's where he lived as they as they started their, their, their time as a band. Now... Before I even knew who Minutemen were necessarily, I mean, I knew their name, but I never, didn't really hear them because you know when I was a kid, we didn't have the internet and we didn't have str- we didn't have streaming services. What or YouTube? <gasps> what? So there was no way for us to hear groups except on the radio, on mm-hmm. University Radio. Right. And then even then, University Radio had a real like slash and burn view of music. You know, like something a year old was a year old. Ugh, Ugh. get that out of here. Yeah. Good. Riddance. So sometimes you some songs lasted for a while, you know. Right. Like you could request things, and there's some songs that stayed in rotation forever. You know, TV Party by Black Flag and and uh, um, Anarchy in the UK. Mm-hmm. Most of the songs with swear words in them. Those are the ones that really lasted. Right. Uh, Let's go to fucking Hawaii by the Young Canadians was like so constantly uh, requested for on CITR <laughs> because it said uh, that yeah. F word in right. it. Right. And. And yeah, so those were like the most requested songs. So the, some songs stayed in rotation, but m- most songs came and went. And so you'd hear about a band and maybe you'd go and look at it and you'd be like, well, I heard Double Nickels on the Dime. Their double album by the Minutemen is really good. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the store and look at it and it's like 20 bucks. And you're right. Like, but is it $20 worth? Because yeah. that's a lot of money. That's almost three records mm-hmm. to buy this one album. Oh, scratch, scratch your head. I don't know. But one time I was watching videos like a, a really a late night video show that was on a local seattle station called kcpq which bizarrely was co-owned by the hollywood director stanley kramer who did like it's a mad 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 world and judgment at nuremberg and and other movies like that what's the one about the scopes monkey trial inherit the wind though he do movies like that he was Snow- very what's that scopes or snopes no scopes monkey's trial not scopes monkey oh trial. yeah yeah not snopes no that's the site that debunked the Scopes Monkey Trial. 
but no, Inherit the Wind, which is about... Anyway, he did like a lot of message-based movies. Guess right. who's coming to dinner and stuff like that. But then he bizarrely owned this little TV station in, in Seattle. But anyway, so they had a late night show. I guess someone like made their own video show and would just buy time, like about a half hour block of time on this local station. And it seemed like they played... you know, So they're all kind of alternative videos. Mm-hmm. Like That's where I saw Big Black's final show at, at uh, in Seattle where they burned all their instruments in order to declare the end of the band. And that's where, you know, that's where I saw this uh, song by Firehose for the first time because I never, I didn't know who Miniman were. And so I saw this Firehose song. And I was just like, these guys are great. <laughs> but I guess they were really like super connected to the to the skateboard scene. And I don't know why, because they weren't skateboarders, although George Hurley was a surfer. Oh, okay. But their songs became really popular with, with, with skaters. Hmm. And at that I think t- there's a lot of overlap with skateboarders and punks. And at that time, the company that was sponsoring this video show was called Fallout Records and Tapes Okay, that had a super skater connection as well. So the commercials were all like kids, like skaters skating, doing skating tricks and stuff like that. Right. Well, loud music was playing and it'd just be like Fallout Records and Tapes. Yeah. And then I later went there when they had, they'd switched over to comic, a comic book store. Okay. And when I was there, someone walked by and went, sellouts! I was like, sellout from doing records and tapes to comics? I didn't really feel like selling out. <laughs> but Okay. <laughs> I went down there because I drove Chester Brown, the cartoonist, mm-hmm. down uh, around BC and then down to the Seattle for signings. And uh, yeah, so we were, that's why we were there. Cool. When someone yelled at us, as calling us sellouts. <laughs> we were calling Chester Brown a sellout. Yeah. You sellouts. You don't sell <laughs> skateboards anymore. <laughs> I don't think Chester Brown ever sold skateboards. So Firehose, after seven years, mm-hmm. five albums and 980 shows, hmm. they decided to call it quits. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Mike Watt's marriage to former Black Flag bassist Kira Rosler also came to an end. Both the same length. Both of them are about seven years and both ended at the same time. And they still re- they remained friends, though. That's good. And still they had a side project called Dose for Two, mm-hmm. where they both played bass in, in this group. And they continued with, the, with that for many years after. Cool. But uh, they were no longer married. And so we kind of went into this period. He didn't play music for about a year because... Firehose were over, and he didn't really have any other projects on the go. And so he kind of started putting together this solo album, and Firehose's last album was with Columbia Records. And so his solo album was on Columbia. And this was at a time when record labels were just throwing money every which way. <laughs> and so CDs were, you know, where all this reissue stuff was happening, and, and they're all like, so they're, you know, making all these making all this money was stuff they didn't pay any money for. Right. They, they'd already paid money for it in the 60s. And they're just reissuing it and people are rebuying it, giving away their records and rebuying the CDs. Mm-hmm. It was heaven for record labels in the 90s. And so they just had lots of money. So so Mike Watt, fairly unknown guy, gets to do a record that he records in LA, mm-hmm. New York, and Chicago. Mm-hmm. He had 48 different guests on the album. Wow. He just kind of opened up his address book and called all his friends. So um, it basically, he was joined for the album by Henry Rollins from Black Flag, of course. Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, Jay Mascus from Dinosaur Jr., mm-hmm. Evan Dando from the Lemonheads, Frank mm-hmm. Black from the Pixies, mm-hmm. uh, members of Sonic Youth helped him out, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, Soul Asylum, Jane's Addiction, the Beastie Boys, um, Bikini Kill, mm-hmm. the Screaming Trees, like all these different groups came up. Yeah. Nels Klein, who was kind of unknown at that time, the guitar player who later played with Wilco, he was a part of the project. Cool. Uh, a real who's who. A real who's who of the time, exactly. And so Watts referred to it as as his wrestling record because he felt like everyone was coming in the studio to wrestle each other to get these songs out. <laughs> and he didn't have like any real plan. He just kind of like would come to a town, like say Chicago, 
Flip over his address book and like invite people that he knew from coming right. to town and touring as Minutemen and as mm. as Firehose. Maybe I've been. Maybe it's because I've been rewatching Glow. Yeah. But it would be pretty cool to uh, see all those groups wrestle each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be, you know, beautiful women get wrestling each other and a bunch of guys, mm. a bunch of musicians. Uh, mm. Anyway, so then, <laughs> uh, yeah, so. So yeah, you just like the idea of like all these musicians sort of pounding it out in the studio trying to get it done. So so uh this song against the 70s features well, obviously Mike Watt on bass, mm-hmm. Eddie Vedder mm-hmm. on vocals and guitar, Dave Grohl from mm-hmm. okay. Pearl Jam and Foo yeah. Fighters on drums, Gary Lee Connor who I don't know on the guitar, Chris Novoselic also from Nirvana on Farfisa organ, and then Carla Buzolich on backing vocals. And once again, I don't really know her, although it turns out that they didn't play together on the album, but Nels Klein and her had a long-time relationship after working on this album. Even though they didn't work on it together, they kind of met through it and then became became uh, uh, partners for a long time. And also, Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill met Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys doing doing uh, this album, and they've been together ever since. So that's uh, there's you know Mike Watt really knew how to make chemistry happen, I guess. Yeah, apparently. So now. Veteran Watts were originally planning to cover Captain Beefheart's Dirty Blue Jean from his album Dock at the Radar Station, but scrapped at the last minute to do this this Watt song against the 70s. And now Watt maintains that Vetter performed his vocals in a wetsuit he found in the trash in an alley behind the studio in Hollywood. So I don't know if that's true, but it's a nice image to me that Vetter put, pulled on this dirty wetsuit he found in a, in a dumpster to sing the song. Right. And Gary I, Lee Connor was in... Screaming Trees. Lead singer, don't tell me, because I don't like the guy. Uh, Mark, is his first name Mark? Oh, Lanigan. Yep. Yeah, he sang with um, he sang with, with uh, Isabel Campbell from Bell and Sebastian. Oh, they did okay. a couple albums together. Yeah. But I don't know, he's just got this really kind of deep voice. Right. And he sings in that kind of really slow way, you know, it's almost yeah. kind of like... Right. Sounds like... Don't like it. That's playing being played backwards. <laughs> I made it worse than it is. Yeah, maybe. It is. That's how it sounds to me. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, meh. But um, Gary Lee Connor and his brother Van Connor. Okay. Was the bassist. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I do have a Screaming Trees album, but I don't like it very much. Okay. Because you know you just bought stuff at the time because you were looking for the next thing. Yes. But I highly recommend. In fact, I'm going to put on the website. There's a documentary called We Jam Econo: The Minutemen Story. And I, I highly recommend it. It's a great, it's a great watch. But a, a band that I think were pretty good. I think they're more like inspirational good than they were like actually good. But I think most people know them now because that show, that TV show where people hurt themselves for fun. What was that show called? Jackass. Jackass. Yeah, used their used one of used their song, one of their songs, their instrumental songs as a as the theme music for it. Oh, okay. So if you played them, like people say, I don't know who Minutemen were, and you go, well, but you know this song, and they went, oh yeah, that's a Jackass theme. And yeah. You know and you know the Minutemen. Hmm. Unfortunately, Dee Boone, who wrote the song, was never around to get the the benefits of that. Oh. Um, sad. But I got to tell you right now, mm-hmm. great transition between songs, Mary. From this one to our next song? Yeah. Because it goes, it has that fake ending. Mm-hmm. And then it stops suddenly. Mm-hmm. Like it comes back in and then it stops suddenly. Yeah. And then you get the, what something I love when bands do is the, using the click of the sticks, the drummer counting yes. out the, getting the tempo. Yeah. And so you have the click, click, and then the song starts. So it goes from the complete stop mm-hmm. to click click and then this next song right. starts which i love and this next song is plateau by the meat puppets from their second album which was originally titled i mean titled in an original fashion they didn't change it it's called meat puppets 2 oh what year uh i'm gonna guess 1983 okay 1984 
You were very close. It was recorded in 1983, but was sat on by SST Records for a year. Oh, SST again. Yes. Our old friends. Our old friends, SST. From this past band. Me Puppets, still we didn't get paid for these albums, (laughs) most likely. But this is, uh, I mean, they did get paid eventually because these were reissued on CD by Reiko Disc. So they they would have seen some. They uh, got paid for that at least. They got paid for that at least, yeah. They, prob- they were probably smarter than some bands that maybe own their masters. I don't know hmm. for sure. But it seems like they had some money because uh, if you read about them, they talk about them leaving their... They were from Phoenix originally, mm-hmm. but the brothers in the band, they they moved to Tempe. There are two brothers uh, named Chris and Kurt Kirkwood. Uh, they moved to Tempe, Arizona, and both of them bought houses there and used, them as, and used one of them as a rehearsal space. Hmm. Which they had a shed in the backyard. They used yeah. a rehearsal space. So that seems like they had some money. Right. To go around buying a house. Like moving. Yeah. Like it seems kind of hard. Unlikely that I, I couldn't do that when I was 20. No. But anyway. Know. Although like, we do live. Vancouver has always been more expensive than. That's true. I mean. But Tempe is a university town. So I imagine it's mm, not cheap. That's true. But it's also in Arizona. Is Arizona cheap? No. I don't think so. <laughs> it's Arizona. Who knows then in the 80s though of course. Yeah. That's true. Everything's different. Before the seismic shift of the 90s. So let's give a listen after that strange preamble to Meat Puppets Plateau from 1984. thoughts about plateau any thoughts about plateau yeah yes um i liked it yeah i thought it was a fun song okay it reminded me of beck 
okay. a little bit yeah, in the beginning. Yeah, I wonder if Becca's been influenced by them, probably. Yeah, because, and even when I was listening, I, I was listening to it in the car with Eve as well. Yeah. And I said, does this song remind you of Beck? And she said, yes. Okay. Um, uh, and I, yeah, I thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. I thought that the singing was kind of whiny, but not too whiny. Yeah. yeah. Which was nice. Sure. Yeah, it was fun. I liked it. Cool. Yeah, I was uh, talking about this album with uh, with a, f- a friend a little while ago, and he was complaining. He was calling this album bad, and I was like, well, why is it bad? I mean, it's got lots of good songs on it and everything. He goes, he goes, yeah, it sounds horrible. And I'm like, what? What? You mean this album produced by like a, a, a small independent label in California, like the records don't sound great, as if they were recorded in a cheap studio for really quickly? Like, that's... Like, that's a recommendation right. for this album. That's, yeah. like, the reason that we listened to it. That's the reason we listened to it at the time. That it wasn't, like, a full-blown, overblown production like the Thompson Twins or the Police or whatever. This was, like, such a breath of fresh air to all that claustrophobic overproduction and synth sounds. Like, this was, like, you know, and then now you're criticizing it because it sounds bad? What the hell? <laughs> anyway, poor Spot, the producer of many, many SSD albums. Um... I think it's a thematically apt song to follow against the 70s. And it wasn't intentional. I just put them together because I liked the the uh, the way that they flowed. But Watt's original band, The Minutemen, covered the Meat Puppet song Lost from this album on their final studio album, Three-Way, three-way, tie, three-way tie for Last. Okay. So there is, there's your connection between the two songs, even though it was accidental, of course. Right. Nothing's ever intended in life. No. Well... Actually, lots of things are, but that's okay. <laughs> As I said... Maybe nothing is ever intended in mixtapes. That There you go. Yeah. Or life. The mixtapes... Uh, I mean, things are intended in life, but they never work out the way you intended it, so nothing can really be intended in life. Uh, the brothers Kurt... Things often work out in life. Such as? Like, if I want to pick up this glass of water, yeah. I picked it up. Okay, that seems very minor. I'm talking about things that are sort of bigger than that, like more well, major things. You, know? you didn't clarify. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, did I mention that I... Gave birth. I didn't give birth. I gave birth, but I helped with the the creation of a lawyer when I was a you know, father. <laughs> As I said on Tiki Dragon this week, everyone mm-hmm. loves people who who like to uh, break out the legalisms to get around other people's uh, rules. Yes, yeah. true. <laughs> so I said that Chris and Kurt Kirkwood worked on this album as well as the drummer, whose name was Derek Bostrom, and Me Puppets too reflects their dissatisfaction with the hardcore scene. That was, you know, popular at the time amongst people playing, especially in, in California. And they were in Arizona, but close close enough to California to be the same thing. And so, you know, everyone was kind of part of that scene. And their first album, Meat Puppets, is very hardcore. It's almost impossible to understand what they're saying. The songs were all played with super fast. And when it came time to do this album, they just decided to shed most of that part of themselves. There's still a couple of songs in here that have a kind of thrashy, hardcore element to them. But mostly the album... Uh, almost creates is part well part of the creation, but it's definitely very much a precursor to what would later be called the cowpunk scene, which is bands playing with a more country and western sound, but adding the punky punky kind of quick element quicker oh, okay. elements to it. So a band like Rank and File would be an example of that. Or there's other ones too that I don't remember the names of. Hmm. But there was uh, Lone Justice, I guess, would be another band that would fall fall under that under that uh, nomencl- nomenclature. Can I use that word? Yep. Thank you. So, like I said, the album was finished in 83, but not released till 84. And I kind of wonder if SST held it back because they were unsure with the direction the band had taken. Oh, it's And not... didn't really fit the label's identity. Right. It's not because they were super broke and couldn't afford it. Well, that's out. a possibility as well. They might not be able to afford the pressing costs and everything. 
because in those days, that's an interesting part of uh, Weeja McConnell, which I was watching a couple of the outtakes last night when I was supposed to be doing research. And one of them had the producer spot talking and he brought out, a, brought out these envelopes, these big manila envelopes, and they mm-hmm. had the original metal pressings of the albums. Oh. So that's what the the, the vinyl would have been pressed between these cool. two discs that had the... Right. Had all the... Like a master key. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And so he was showing these because uh, they were from the first album by the by the group. Oh, okay. Yeah, those would have been expensive to make. You would have had to pay someone yeah, to totally. cut those master discs. And then, then you have to pay the 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 you know the the record plant to to press the vinyl and everything so so yeah that would have cost you so that's a possibility they just didn't have the money yeah that's a good point I didn't think about that like I say I think the album did point a way out of the hardcore cul-de-sac into some other kind of options and so there were a lot of bands that kind of did this at the time there was Husker Du you know they did uh, New Day Rising and kind of work their way into a more more kind of punk pop style. There were a lot of bands that did this, replacements as well. They they right. went in a different direction, and more roots rocky, and mm-hmm. then so everyone kind of followed their heart, but kind of got out of the hardcore thing. Right, like yeah. Sloan. Like Sloan. Well, Sloan was more of a grunge. They, right, but you know, well, they came same on, idea. they came out of the hardcore scene in Halifax, which was because it's Halifax was you know five years later than everyone well, else. Yeah, of course, yeah. it takes a while to ship everything up there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right, so that's the Meat Puppets. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah, it was a good song. And it and it will thematically fit into the the last song on our mixtape as well. Oh, that's true. Well, it's kind of interesting. Speaking of themes, we talked about Jim O'Rourke last episode because he uh, did the mixing and mastering for Judy Sills. Oh yes, collection of of lost songs, dreams come true. Mm-hmm. Two thousand five. Two thousand five. That's right. And we're now going to play a, a Jim O'Rourke song. What? This is uh, last year. Thematic. Yes, very thematic. Unintentional, of course, as I say, and, mm-hmm. but thematic nonetheless. So this is Jim O'Rourke singing last year from uh, the album. It's called Simple Songs, and it came out in 2015. It's the most recent, recent uh, album here. So here we go, everyone.
Did you have some thoughts about Jim O'Rourke's song, which is called Last Year, which came out on his album Simple? Which came out not music. last year, but five <laughs> years ago. Yes. Uh, I thought it was a really fun song. I liked it. Yeah, it's very good, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's surprisingly good because Jim O'Rourke, I'll be honest with you, plays a lot of music that's not up my alley. Right. He does a lot of experimental avant-garde single track albums mm, not a fan which are not only are they hard to get through they're hard to get through because you can't pause them and come back later um, right because they're t- what how long 40 minutes long 
30 minutes? Yeah, it depends. 20, 20 30, it depends on what Oof. he's feeling like. Mm. And yeah, he's done 38 albums. Mm. I mean, it's easy to do a lot of albums when you're just doing one song per <laughs> album, right? <laughs> and he's done 38 albums, but oh, but I would say only uh, only five of those albums would be considered like kind of pop music like this. Right. And one of those five albums is kind of a difficult pop album of, of, its, of its own. But I think we know him best, Mary, because he's produced albums that well, that you and maybe and I also love, maybe not you as much as me, but he's produced like st- what? Stereolabs, Cobra and Group Phases. I love Stereolabs, Cobra and Group Phases, Play Voltage in the Milky Night. Or Phases Group, I guess you should say. I always get that mixed up. Right. And then he also produced Wilco, Wilco's A Ghost is Born. Yes. Which is an album I, the only Wilco album your, that I like. Yes, your absolute favorite Wilco album. And then also worked with Bobby Kahn, another show favorite. Yes, uh, Bobby Kahn and the Glass Gypsies and yeah. his song... Uh, we come in peace. We come in peace. Thank you. But I don't know if he produced that album, but I know that he just worked with Bobby Kahn. Um I could have looked it up, but I didn't bother. Although, if you say that Jim O'Rourke enjoys very experimental music, yeah. it makes sense that he likes Bobby Kahn. Yeah. Because the Bobby Kahn song that we played is supposedly not very indicative of Bobby Kahn's music, yeah. which is yeah. generally more experimental. Mm, interesting. So, yeah. So, like I was saying, he's done all these avant-garde sort of electronic albums and things mm-hmm. like that a lot of like buzzing noises right things that you can listen to while getting bored yeah he has also produced more traditional albums mm-hmm. and what's interesting to me about those albums mary and you may not get this because you're not a movie fan but if you're a movie fan out there everyone i'm sorry i am going i'm not a movie fan you are a, a, a recent movie fan you don't really like old movies that much would what you describe you? yourself as an old movie fan to find old like 60s, 70s movies i don't watch 60s movies okay maybe we'll get this well maybe maybe you're gonna get this mary okay I'm going to ask this to people out there, too, though. Mm-hmm. If you like movies, will you get the reference he's making in the names of his albums? These are his so-called pop albums, including Bad Timing, which came out in 1997, Eureka, which came out in 1999, Insignificance, that came out in 2001. Those are all clues, maybe, because they're all titles of a particular director's movies. And then his final album, The Visitor, I shouldn't say final album, but his next album, The Visitor, which came out in 2009, is not really a pop album like like the first three. Right. It's more of an experimental electronica album, but with sort of a David Bowie-esque element to it because The Visitor is a, is a, uh, is a what do you call it? A made-up album, a fictional album in the film The Man Who Fell to Earth, oh, which okay. is another movie by the director of those first, you know. Mm-hmm. So can you get it? If I name a couple other films that he did, would, yeah, will that name, help you? Name, yeah, sure. Walk About. Okay. And... Uh, my personal favorite film by him, mm-hmm. which is called, uh, oh my God, what is it called? <laughs> I want to say it's called Don't, oh, it's Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now. Yeah. No, Don't Look, I don't know. Uh, Nicholas Rogue. I'm pretty sure it's called Don't Look Now. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, Nicholas Rogue is mm-hmm. the name of the director. He's a British director. Walkabout is a great movie. It's based, set in the Australian outback with two kids who get lost in the outback. Are they doing a walkabout? Well, they end up doing a walkabout oh. because they're lost. In the Australian And they're joined outback. by an Aboriginal man who takes them on a walkabout. And then uh, Don't Look Now, if I'm getting that name right, is a fantastic movie with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie as two, two parents who lose their young daughter in mm-hmm. an accident and go to go to Venice uh, grieving her loss. And it's great. And then uh, Bad Timing with Art Garfunkel. And all those movies are great. Insignificance, Eureka with uh, Marilyn Monroe and, and Albert Einstein as characters. Yeah, I would uh, highly recommend any of those movies. Meant to Fall to Earth, I find his flattest movie. I think it's a little, it's a little unreachable for me. Hmm. But I know a lot of people like it because it has David Bowie in it mm-hmm. as as the as the main character. Yeah, that's one I often hear people talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
So, did you know that Don't Look Now is based on a story by um by Daphne du Maurier? Yeah, I did know that. Hmm. Yes, but it ta- it takes a lot of liberties with her story. Uh, yes. So in 2005, Mary O'Rourke relocated to Tokyo. That's where he currently lives. And so all the backing musicians on this album are Japanese musicians, but they're fantastic. There's fantastic musicians who playing in this great rock pop style. You know, like because you know the Japanese love Western music. They just love rock and roll and stuff like that. So they are. They are as adept as anyone else as, uh, at doing this stuff, and and there's a great, uh, great bit of YouTube video of him doing this song at a at a concert. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'll, I'll put a link to that as well. Cool. So we get a link to Weijamakano, and we'll get a link to uh, O'Rourke singing uh, last year. It's quite fun to watch him because he looks like a hobo who somehow stumbled on stage. <laughs> and what's interesting is that the clothes that he's wearing on stage are the exact same clothes he's wearing on the album cover. So it looks like he just stepped out of the album cover onto the. Onto the stage. The album cover is him from behind. Right. Wearing this kind of ratty old sweater and uh, and this kind of floppy hat. Like a, kind of like a, I don't know how to describe the hat. If you, yeah. Floppy hat? Well, it's just like one of those hats that almost look like, like a sailor's cap. Kind of like what Gillian wears in uh, Gillian's Island. You know, it's like the brim's turned down. But it's oh. not, it's not a sailor's hat. It's like a more normal hat, but the brim has been pulled down so that it's, like it's kind of like a. Right. It's like a rain hat kind of, like right? he's wearing a shell on his head. Yeah, like a rain yeah. hat. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I don't know what those are called either. Yeah, I don't know what they're called. They so. were popular for boat drivers, though. Okay, okay. Maybe that's what he wants to look like. He wanted to look like a like a uh, a boat driver who wandered on stage to play really yeah. fantastic guitar and sing this great song. <laughs> I have All to right. say, I've never known a boat driver who okay, is also... A musician? Musician, yeah. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I didn't know most of the boat driver's hobbies. Yeah, so, that's you know, true. You should, you should ask every time you meet one. Yeah. Next time, yeah. Remember that. I don't really hang out with boat drivers anymore. <laughs> really? Why not? Summer's over? No, because I live. I don't live on an island anymore. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. All right. Next song? Yeah. What is it? This is Kate LeBon. Kate LeBon? Yeah. We've played her before, right? Yes, we have. Uh, this is from her album Crab Day. Okay. Funny name. Yes. Which came out in 2016. Cool. I think this will be our most most current album for this, Makes sense. this episode. So this is, uh, everyone, this is Kate LeBon with I Was Born on the Wrong Day from uh, 2016. Let's give it a listen. Lyceums, no doubt, is 15 for your money. Dream of copper calendars, laughter in the drive. Cry in your mouth 
All right, Mary, that was uh, Kate LeBon. And what do you think of that song? I thought it was good. I liked it. It's really fun. Yeah. Um, her voice is really unique. <laughs> yes, it sure is. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I think there's a little bit of put on with her, like her way of playing her music. And right. She has a very, I would call it a kind of a robotic sound to how she plays her songs. Oh, okay. They're very dun, 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 right. dun, a lot of time. There will, there'll be another song from this album coming up in another tape, and it's kind of follows a similar way of like very very almost automatic sound to the right. the playing but what's curious about this album is that so the year before it came out she collaborated with uh this guy who had formerly played in the fall mm-hmm. uh, the kind of later fall albums like Re- reformation post tlc and stuff like that named tim presley and he was playing in his own kind of band i can't remember what they're called now they had like a and i just you know it's just like a name he gave to a project uh but they did a project together called drinks Okay. And it was kind of a formative experience for Laban because she'd never recorded the way that he did. Right. And she really liked it. And so when she came time to do Crab Day, she did it totally different than how she'd done Bug Museum before. Right. Which is basically for her to like write all the lyrics first and then construct the songs around the lyrics. Oh, interesting. And instead of doing that, she uh, created short demos using different instruments. So she, you know, guitar or, or synthesizer or, or, mm-hmm. or, or piano or whatever. And then... Um, she recorded all the music for the album, but she wrote the lyrics after the music was recorded. So the album was rehearsed for five days with her band, and then the recording process took five days. So they recorded the whole album in five days. And then Laban added all her vocals and overdubs after that was done. And so she kind of liked that process. And I think and I think that kind of adds to what she likes anyway, which is very surreal vocals. Well, at this point, very surreal vocals. She's kind of moved away from that, like her last album, Reward, which was more detailing her end of her relationship with, okay. with with her, with her former uh, boyfriend who left her to uh, hook up with another musician. I don't want to hook up. That sounds terrible. But start a relationship with another musician, another... Eggs. Yeah. Not ideal. <laughs> and so that album kind of... What musician was it? Oh, I know her name and now it's just jumped out of my head. Shoot. New Zealand album designer name... Aldous Harding. Yeah, Aldous Harding. Oh, okay. Uh, is who he took up with. Right. And so... So yeah, so that was something for her to deal with. So that album is kind of processing grief and is a little more linear than this album, which, you know, has sort of things like, well, with the, someone playing the typewriter in the background through this song, it just kind of adds to the, you know, because it has that every little bit. It just kind of does it, not even on the beat. It's just kind of this played, it's played rhythmically, but not necessarily with the beat of the song. But anyway, it's kind of curious, isn't it? Yeah. All right. So we move on? I don't really have much more to say about Kate. We talked about her last time. We talked time. about her before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder, you said that she. you think she kind of puts on her, her voice a yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. Do you think Joanna Newsom does that too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I wonder if... I think it's a way to distance yourself from your art. Right. So you can't be judged on who you are necessarily because you are, you are a persona. Right. Because an airplane flying by everyone. Yeah. We live in a flight path for uh, for the Abbotsford Air- Airport, so which is a pretty small airport. Not that small. It has it has uh, it has inter- uh, not Dem- inter- but it has national fl- uh, flights going domestic. on domestic. Yeah, or say, yeah, domestic flights. Yeah, but yes, not huge. No, not international. It's not YVR. It is no, but it's YVR. also not Langley. <laughs> that is correct. Doesn't have just like prop planes people own for fun coming and going. I think Joanna Newsom, and her first album particularly, is trying to kind of. Um, channel a kind of Appalachian folk singer sound, mm. like sort of like an old timey sound to her right, voice. Right, yes. 
Caleb... Well, that works in with with her harp playing mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Caleb Bon is kind of going for something a little more surreal. Uh, kind of, I think to her, her singing and her songs have a have a very absurdist element to them, and so right. she's trying to bring like a a theatrical singing style to mm-hmm. it as well. I get that from Joanna Newsom as well, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, theatrical and sure. um, surreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's go to our next song, dear. All right. What's our next song? Our next song, I think, will be a song that will leave listeners show scratching their heads as to why did Dave put this ding-dang song on the album. Oh. Because this is probably the most uncool song we've ever had on an album so far. Okay. But this is Leo Serre from uh, the album Silverbird. Okay. It came out in 1973. This is The Show Must Go On. Here we go, everyone. Baby, though I chose this lonely life, it seems it's strangling me now. Thoughts on the infamous Leo Serre and uh, why the show is this, Why is this infamous? It's not that this song is infamous. We'll, we'll talk about it when we get into its okay. history. Well, I didn't know anything about its infamy. That's the, that's the great thing about it. Um, but I liked it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a fun song. I liked the sort of jangly instrumentation. Mm-hmm. I thought his singing was really fun. Yeah. I love, it's kind of like 
like the roughness yeah. and like the shrieking are super fun. <laughs> it's what speaking of theatrical. This, this speaking is a, theatrical. This oh, is a very totally. theatrical performance. Yes. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I do like that because it's about a show must go on. Yeah, it has a very um, yeah. I think theatrical he is a, a he performed it in Perrault makeup, like a like the kind of French clown, you know, the white face makeup oh, with yeah, a yeah. little black spots yes. on the cheeks and like a, we we see it today often as a mime. Yeah, mimes yeah. will often dress dress sure. like French mimes. Yeah, yeah. Um. And one thing that I thought was was kind of fun yeah. was that the instrumentation always felt very upbeat. Yeah. Even when he was obviously, like, his his voice was making him sound very sad. Yeah. Or he was, like, shrieking. Sure. But the music was still very much like, dee, 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 you know, like, kind of, that's not the tune, but it was yeah, very, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. jangly uh, and happy sounding. Yeah. It kind of, it's kind of uh, harkens to Skiffle. For me, and what fascinated fascinated me about this song is that it reminds me of of a Canadian hit song that came out around the same time by okay. this band called the Stampeders. There was like a huge hit in were Canada. They from Calgary. Uh, they were based probably from in, Calgary because uh, yeah. they're called the Stampeders. They were the based Calgary in Western Stampede. Canada, yeah. So the Prairie kind of band. So so they um yeah, and so they did a song, this song called "Sweet City Woman," which is this really weird song because it's like a combination of banjo and electric guitar. Which is really kind of bizarre, and it, it reminded me of it. And just I was like, man, like what a weird. I don't think it's a banjo in the show must go on, but it's like a ukulele that's played kind of like a banjo. Right. It's got that juka 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 sound to it, right? They are from Calgary. They were from Calgary originally. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know sense. what this song kind of reminds me of? Yeah. Is or not totally, but just sort of the essence of it. Yeah. Reminds me a bit of that song by was it by the Kinks? Yeah, I was going to say granny... that all of my friends were there. No, that granny. That's what I was thinking it sounded a bit like. Because that's a song about a guy who goes to perform and then it's a disaster. And... Hold on. Wait, wait. Are we talking about the same one? I'm talking about that Granny's one. Granny's? Granny. Is that not by the Kinks? No. What are... are you thinking of uh, gra- when Grandma plays a banjo? No. Oh, sorry. The one by the Purple Gang. Granny Takes a Trip. Yes. Trip. Okay. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Cause not... that... I don't know why I thought it was by the Kinks. But... Well, that because it... it, it um... It's part of the skiffle tradition in, in yeah. England. Okay. And so like a band like Mungo Jerry, like in the summertime would be another example of a song kind of sounding like this as well. Right. You know, it's all played very much on yeah. kind of a ukulele, kind of a old fashioned sound right. with a bunch of kazoos and tubs and, yeah. and things being thumped. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Mungo Jerry definitely has a sort of theatrical element to it. Well, it does, because since its its name is from, it's one of the cats from T.S. Eliot's Cats, or Cats. Or, yeah, it's from... Book of Cats, it's called, or whatever it's called. From the poem, or from the poem, the book of poems about cats. Yeah. Or from the play, or the... The musical would have been much much later than Mungo Jerry taking their name. Yes. Maybe it inspired, whatever that guy's name is, the guy who composed it. Yeah, whose name I can't remember right now. Tim... Heidecker. Not Tim Heidecker. Tim... Is it Tim? Yeah. Yeah, he did like Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I think it's like a double barrel last name. Weber? Mar- Tim? Andrew Lloyd Weber. And- oh, it's not Tim. It's, it's Tim-, not Tim. Tim Rice was his partner. Oh, so many partner. Yeah. And Andrew Lloyd Weber. Jeez. Father of Mark Weber from uh, Scott Pilgrim. Just kidding. Wait. Who? Father of who? Mark Weber. Who's Mark Weber? Plays Stephen Stills and uh, oh. Scott Pilgrim. But I'm just kidding. So, Mayor. Yes. Leo Sayre. Began his career kind of as a songwriter, trying to work his way into the industry. Oh, sorry. Quickly. Yeah. T.S. Eliot's um, poetry collection was Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Why can't I remember that? Yeah, right? Never read it. No, me neither. I'm not a, I'm not a poetry fan. I'm a big fan of some, t- some T.S. Eliot. I love the love song of J.F. Prufrock and The Wasteland. 
But yeah, I'm, I have a hard time making my way through poetry. I think it's uh, a language you have to learn. Yeah. To love, and yes. if you don't learn it, you won't love it. No, I've never, I've never enjoyed it. I think it's just not. It's too. Gr- it's not grounded enough for mm. me. I think. Mm. Yeah. See, I love the poem in Pale Fire, the Vladimir Nabokov's story mm-hmm. or novel. I think that's a great, great poem. But it's almost. It's but what's funny about it is it's a pastiche. Like right. It's not intended as a great poem, but I think it's a great poem. Right. Because really, the novel is like a. It's about a. It's kind of complicated. It's a meta novel about someone else writing a, a commentary on this poem, but he he kidnaps the poem and blah blah blah. It's just yeah, it's very it's uh has almost nothing to do with the poem, but the poem is great nonetheless. Okay, can I tell a, a quick anecdote about a poem? Sure. Um, so at at work uh, one day, um, someone or one of the residents yep. was like, "Oh, I wrote this poem," and okay. she like gave it to concierge, and concierge was like, "Oh, okay," and like wrote it like typed it up in the computer and then emailed it to me and was like joyce resident wrote this poem and yeah. she wants you to put it in the newsletter and i was like okay and i read it and i was like sounds more familiar <laughs> i was like okay whatever and i was like you know emailed it to, to my supervisor and was like oh like this we can put this in the newsletter it's from one of the residents put it in i was looking at it and i kept, kept reading it and being like <laughs> think- sounds so familiar yeah and it's the poem Trees by Joyce Kilmer, <laughs> okay. which came out in 1913. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty And it's common. like, a, it's a very well-known poem. I would say so. And I was like, and when I Googled it, because I just Googled like... I think that like, I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. Uh, no, it was poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Okay. That was the one. And I was like, because the other thing is she kind of skipped a couple of verses. I mean, it's not a very long poem. Yeah. Two, three, four, five, six. It's like six stanzas. Stanzas, Yeah. And she skipped like two of them. Okay. Um, but I think she was just like remembering it because yeah. some of the a couple of the words were different. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I found it. And I was reading about it, and I was like, "Oh man, like this poem was kind of like derided for not being very good at the time." Yeah, and I yeah. mentioned that to my supervisor. I was like, "Oh, so it turns out that that poem was not written by a resident. It's actually a pretty famous poem. Yeah. It was like famous for not being very good." And she was like, "Well." I did believe it was written by the resident, so yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, like that's a pretty harsh critique of, of a poem. <laughs> yeah. This poem could have been written by a senile old woman. Yeah. A woman who constantly says she's a different age than she is. Yeah. But we ended up keeping it in the newsletter as yeah. written by Joyce Kilmer, 1913, submitted by this resident <laughs> okay okay that's a good way to do it yeah all right so i was going to say about leo ceremony oh yeah, yeah you have to understand why i meant infamous right not this song but the guy you not even that he's like a terrible person or anything like that it's just that uh so yeah so he he started as a songwriter he and this other guy named david courtney who kind of discovered him mm-hmm. him performing and said you know what i'm going to be your manager and i'm going to you know we're going to write together and we're, we're going to make a give you a career Right, and here's something that Leo Sayer did. Something that was great, though, Mary. When he was 18 years old, he was working as a as a bellboy in a hotel in London, okay. and there was a huge fire. Mm. And he went in and rescued. He'd rescue all the animals. He rescued all the he rescued all the guests really? from the hotel. Yeah, oh, cool. And was trapped himself, and was only able to get out by someone else. Get him crossing across the alleyway into a building that was next door. And Whoa! They, they helped him across, so he got out of the building. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. So they started writing together, and almost right away they placed a song with Roger Daltrey called Giving It All Away, which was a hit for Roger Daltrey. Cool. He was doing a solo album, and he, he wanted a song that was not written by by uh, Pete Townsend. And so he... Roger Daltrey of The Who? That's right. Yep. And so he uh, he had a solo hit with the song in 1973. And then the same year, I guess in the strength of this song, 
Sayer was signed to Chrysalis Records. And, uh, as a writer? As, as a songwriter? No, as a performer. Oh, cool. By, and so he was then being managed, kind of co-managed between David Courtney and this guy named Adam Faith, who was a former British rocker and teen idol. He, in the late 50s, he was, you know, uh, high up in the charts. And so now his first single failed to chart, but The Show Must Go On was a big hit in the UK. Unfortunately for Sarah, uh, Three Dog Night covered the song in the States and they had a big hit with it in the States. So I guess... Oh, okay. Sort of unfair, unfortunately, but I mean, he still got the songwriting royalties for having a big hit. Yes, which what is not. What he didn't like, though, was that in the his version, he says, I won't let the show go on. Okay. Three Dog Night, being American, changed it to, I must let the show go on. Right. Because you cannot be negative in an American media, popular media. Right. right. Tell that to Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> well, Bringing said, it back I around. I said popular media. Oh, right. I don't think we were talking about Charlie Kaufman on the show, dear. We were, we were pre-talk, pre we were talking before That's the show started. That's not going to be on the show? No. It was oh. Little, that was a lot of talking oh, yeah. before we even started the show. I guess that was before the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dad and I were talking about Charlie Kaufman before the show. If you want, I, I can... we weren't recording. No, no, now that you're saying it, I'm remembering that that was before the show started. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if I was even on mic for that. Uh, you were near Mike. I was near Mike. You were near Mike for that. <laughs> I don't think you were wearing your headphones yet. No, I wasn't. So. Yeah. Bringing it back around by <laughs> referring things that we weren't even <laughs> on the show. Bringing it back around and I was talking about dinner yesterday. Having <laughs> a dinner conversation yesterday. What's <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting, uh, part, uh, much of the song, much of this song was recorded in Roger Daltrey's own studio called Barn Studios, which I must I imagine is in his barn on his property. And that's just a guess, a supposition based on the name of the, his barn studios. Right. Uh, and featured two members of Argent, Russ Ballard on guitar and mm -hmm. Bob Henrit on drums. Mm -hmm. We've talked about Argent before, but have we played one of their songs or no? Oh, uh, we did in our Christmas episodes with, with uh, David M. Oh, We played okay. Argent's, one of Argent's Christmas songs in that. So that's, okay. that does bring it around. Right. Back to Argent. There we go. That's the least related. Yeah. Even though it's from six months ago or whatever. Huh. Um, no, more than that. Nine months. September okay. now. Sure. You, you, it's just all relative. We established that at the beginning. Oh, that's true. Time is meaningless. And I don't, I don't count all the months. Also, this year is like has been a decade. So, <laughs> I only count months that are Roman in origin, not, uh, not from other cultures. Oh, and that counts with days as well. So I do not, I do not have. You don't count Thursday. I don't have Thursday since that relates to Thor. Right. Yeah, or Tuesday. Who's Tuesday? Uh, Tuesday Weld, the actress. Was she not? Where is she from? Britain. Is that? Hmm? Is that not? What? It's not not a Roman origin. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's crazy that Tuesday didn't have a name until so recently, huh? <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, for a long time it was just a blank yeah. day of the week. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah. You know what's interesting? I think in French the uh, names for the days yeah. translate to uh, to gods more closely. The days, you say? Yeah. 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 Mardi, Mars. Yeah. Mercury, Mercury. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um. Yeah. The Tuesday, like that's that's why there are so many songs about based around Tuesday after the '60s when it was finally became an actual day of the oh, week. Oh right, because before the people just didn't have a name for they didn't it. Didn't have a name for it. That's right. Yeah. Like Stormy Monday, but after that, it became like the Boomtown Rat song. I don't like Tuesdays. Uh, the song by the Bangles, Manic Tuesday. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Um, the Morrissey song, Every Day is like Tuesday. Uh huh. Yep. You yep. Know, yep. It became like more and more like that. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, now, here's the reason that I th I say this song would get people raising their eyebrows is because Sarah would later become the object of disdain for many rock snobs, maybe even punk rock snobs, Mary, for his 1976 hit, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, which was kind of a disco hit of its day. 
And also the fact that he wore suspenders. Okay. Yep. He wore suspenders. Yes. With blue jeans. Okay. Did like incredibly like kind of acrobatic stuff as mm-hmm. part of his part of his. It is he just had like he seemed like a goof. Suspenders are cool. I don't think that's the case. I think suspenders are super cool. Why do you think that? Because they look cool. I never thought that. No. We have a few residents who wear suspenders, and I'm almost like, such a cool look. <laughs> Get out of here. What? I'm not joking. I'm serious. I really like suspenders. Wow. Belts are lame. Oh. Get rid of belts. Bring my suspenders. I don't have a belt on right now, so. Ha! I'm there safe. you go. I'm safe. I don't have my belt on. All right. Well, uh, okay. Also, bring back overalls. Bring back overalls? Yeah. If you say so, Mary. I'm going to buy overalls next year for myself to wear. All right. What? Nothing. You looked concerned. Uh, I think I forgot about a song I wanted to play with another uh, with another song on here, but that's eh, okay. That's fine. So I have um, somewhere to be. You have somewhere to be. Okay. Yeah, I got plans after this. Okay, we don't have time for songs. No. Pff. What is this? <laughs> a music podcast. So maybe people will would raise their eyebrows at the last song, mm-hmm. or maybe they'll raise their eyebrows at this song. I don't know what song is going to cause more eyebrow raising, Mary. Oh, okay. I like that you're coming to these songs from no particular point of view. Right. Whereas these are all like weighted with history to me. Some of them are weighted with history to me. So like Leo Sayre, when I liked that song, The Show Must Go On, I was like, geez, I can't believe I'm liking a Leo Sayre song. That's crazy. Mm. But whatever. I like it. So, yeah. you know, it's going on to a mixtape. That's right. how it goes. And this song I, I love from my child, from my teenage days. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're going to listen to Teenage Dave's song. Teenage Dave. Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. Killers. Mm-hmm. From their Killer album, which is called Killers. It mm-hmm. came out in 1981. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a listen, everybody. Let's hear it.
right. And we're back. And Mary? Yes? Do you have an opinion of this song? Okay. So I do like this song. Yeah. But I think I like the song just because of nostalgia. Oh, really? I think so. Because listening to it, I enjoy it. Yeah. But I can't see why I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like a song I would like otherwise. Okay. You know what I mean? Did I play it a lot when you were... I think it was on a mixtape. Oh, it might have been on a mix mix CD. That and we also, I don't know if... I'll, okay, I did do some research on this. Okay. This is why I asked you about it. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought that this song was on Guitar Hero, but it was not on Guitar Hero. I don't know why I thought it was. But if it had been on Guitar Hero, specifically Guitar Hero 3 Legends of Rock, yeah. which is the one that we had, yeah. that would have explained some things. Yeah. I think. For sure. Um, Because but, I played that a lot. Mm-hmm. But I don't like all the songs that were on that yeah yeah no um this was one song like i have the record right i have i have a bunch of the early iron maiden albums Mm -hmm. including uh made in japan Mm -hmm. but i said that was significant like it meant something to you yeah i know i just i enjoyed it so much uh but the the song the song killers that i Mm -hmm. i had for a long time Mm -hmm. i actually got from limewire Oh. It's one of the few songs I downloaded from LimeWare. Right. Because I wanted that song. Right. But I didn't have it in a digital form. Yeah. And I didn't really feel like going and buying Iron Maiden albums again. Because mm-hmm. I already had bought them in the 80s. And you're an adult. 80s. And I, you know, I'm not really a metal guy. You're I, like, I'm a dad now. Even, even then, I wasn't a super metal guy. I mean, yeah. I did listen to metal because I had a friend who was super into metal. Right. So into metal music. Yeah. And I've, I've also never liked metal music. Yeah. It's not my favorite. I, there's some of it I like a lot. But I probably like most of like the stuff that these guys would have been listening to, like Deep Purple, is you know more of my speed, right? Than than this. And I have to admit, I think I mentioned last time we were talking, I was I listened to like the first Black Sabbath album, and I thought it was like this dull as ditch water. So I don't know. It, it just you know it just depends on. It. I, I haven't, as I said, I haven't had a chance to listen to Paranoid yet, right? Which is kind of like a bunch has a bunch of hits on it. Mm-hmm. So that might. might you know, change my mind, but yeah, I did also have this song on my iPod. Well, cause because it was I, in my iTunes, yeah, because, and that's why it was because I, I I stole it off of LimeWire, right? But I didn't have all of the songs that were on your iTunes on my mm-hmm. phone. I just so you must have liked this one. I must have because I remember listening to it like in math class because <laughs> it's all the counting in the song. Yeah, I was allowed to listen to stuff on my iPod because I got my work done. So yeah, I just <laughs> well, I had a neighbor who was a year older than me, and he really got into Iron Maiden. Oh, okay. And he was the one who introduced me to them. And so then I, I, first I was like, this is not good. But then I guess, I guess he wore me down and I started to like them. I guess I just like the galloping drum style of it. Like all their songs sound like someone's writing a horse to me. <laughs> all the songs are just like, that's all they are. Run to the hills, run for your life. That's every song to me sounds like that. So. So I don't know if it was the particular drummer at that time, and and when they changed drummers, I I kind of lost interest because I did lose interest in the band. Right after um, Number of the Beast, but that also could have been me moving grew on. Up. It could have been me growing up and realizing this was not going to get me girls. I don't know what I, what I was thinking at the right. time. Right? Did anyone ever listen to Metal Thinking? It was going to get them girls. I think they thought it was cool. I think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think they realized what it was really cool. What was cool about it really to them? Yeah. But. So with Killers, Mare, yep, Iron Maiden had almost reached a stable lineup. For the first time since the band's Almost. since the band's formation in 1975, and sorry, Almost. what year was this? Eighty uh, one. This is eighty one. Yeah. Okay, so six yeah. years. Yeah. So only bassist and founder and principal songwriter Steve Harris has been in the band since its since the start. Is it still? It's not still. They're still around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Um. So at this point in the at this point the band was on to its third vocalist 
and Paul Diano. Okay. Its fourth drummer in Clive Burr. Okay. Who would only last one more album, which was made after after Number of the Beast. He was replaced by a guy named Nico McBrain. And yes, I think that's his real name. And then guitarist Adrian Smith made his first appearance on this album. Mm -hmm. And he was the band's fifth guitarist. Wow. uh, Besides Dave Murray, who had... uh, and then Smith would leave the band for a period in the 90s. So only Steve Harris. And sorry, what's, what is what is he? What's his, his who, guitarist? Sorry, Steve, Steve Harris? Harris? He's a bass player. Bass player, okay. Yeah. Which is weird. Like, you don't know how to associate a bass player with a band yes. leader. No, But totally. he's definitely the driving force right. of this band. He's is the he one, a songwriter? He writes songs. Okay. He is in charge of the band. Like, he is the one who, he is the driving, he's the motor right. of Iron Maiden. And uh, you stay or go on his say. Hmm. And so. I wonder. Hmm? I wonder if he's difficult. Yes, I would say that's the yeah, case. Yeah, okay. he's very controlling, very, uh, very controlling. Very, it, I can't very see autocratic. otherwise why a successful band would have that much turnover in six years. Well, a lot of the turnover was in its formative days. Oh, so okay. before they became popular, their guys came and went. Right. But even Dave Murray, who has appeared on every Iron Maiden release, mm-hmm. even he was briefly ousted from the band in mm. the early days when uh, he got in a conflict with his former friend who was then vocalist with the group okay so yeah it's uh it's pretty weird so now mayor to understand iron maiden you have to understand a phenomenon that was known as no wahabaham i'm sorry no no wahabaham okay sorry no wahabaham that's how you say it okay new wave of british heavy metal okay yes so that was then the no no wahabaham I think that's how it's said, because it's just spelt as an acronym. Mm. So I can only assume that that's how it is pronounced. Mm. I yeah. do not know for sure, but I can't imagine there's anyone who wants to pronounce every letter in, in that acronym, rather mm. than just saying New Wave of British Heavy Metal. Nwabum. Nwabum, yeah. Nwabum. I think you're, I think you're making it more complicated. I mean, it more complicated than this? It should be Nwabum. 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 Okay. So Nwabum sprung up kind of parallel with punk rock. Okay. And uh, Or if you prefer, per. What's that? Per. <laughs> well, punk rock has never been given an acronym. I'm just saying, if we're calling yeah. it Nwabum, we might as well call it Purr. <laughs> no, no. I think that you are... Because Nwabum was given an acronym right. that is well established as an acronym. Okay. Nwabum. Right, but someone was the first. But punk and rock... I'm punk... the first here <laughs> okay. with Purr. Okay, Purr. So Thank you. at the same time as Purr, uh-huh. Nwabum, they kind of grew parallel. Right. And sort of with different spirits, but similar, similar ideas behind right. them. Right. So... Both of them were reaction to music of the time period. So you had disco, mm-hmm. you had you had kind of pop, pop music, yeah. But disco and pop are very closely related at this point because disco mm-hmm. was so popular right. that it pretty much swallowed up the pop charts. Right. And then you had uh, American style kind of M.O.R. music, you know, your Bob Seegers, your Bruce Springsteens, mm. stuff like that. Then you had your um, prog rock. Okay. Very complicated, Ugh. very virtuosic music, yeah. you know, played by a lot of eggheads mm. with their noodly guitars and, yeah. you know, their playing eight minute songs. Eight minute songs about elves. You yeah. Know? And so, and so this was, so this was kind of a reaction to it. And that is not to say that Nwabum didn't have eight minute long songs. It did. Oh, yeah. It did embrace some elements of prog in, in it right. as well. Because the diff, so the term was coined by this music journalist, a guy named Jeff Barton. Mm-hmm. In May 1979, in Sounds Magazine, which was one of the many sounds... They're called magazines, but they're really like tabloid newspapers. So there's NME, New Musical Express. Yep. There was Melody Maker, and then there was Sounds. Those were the kind of three main um, magazines at the time. And Sounds kind of attached itself to the to Nwabum. And it kind of became the, the paper 
of of that of of that that genre. Okay. And so it was the biggest proponent at that time. So Kerrang magazine, which is what I remember reading a lot about a lot of these bands in, it started in eighty one. And so that was more readily available where I lived, but it didn't start until later. Um so yeah, like punk, no album. No album. Was kind of started as an underground movement that sprung up amongst teenagers who were unhappy with music trends and wanted to strip back rock to its roots. Now, unlike punk rock, which drew inspiration from like 60s garage rock and reggae and eschewed vir- uh, virtuosity in favor of feel and emotional content, mm-hmm. New Album was kind of drew on early British heavy metal, sort of like Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, and Deep Purple would have been sort of touchstones. Uriah Heep to a degree, Judas Priest for sure. Mm-hmm. They kind of, they're kind of on the cusp of New Album, but not quite. They're a little older than that. So... They highlight, but instead of like, instead of eschewing the virtue, virtuosos like punk rock did in favor of short, sharp shocks, Nwabam wanted to have the virtuosos. So it just wanted it faster and more excited. Right. And so that's what it did. So um, basically, although a thousand bands approximately, you know, popped up in the wake of the popularity of Nwabam, only a few survived into the 80s, Mayor. So in the 80s, musical. Taste changed, you know, so the 80s music became more popular. MTV came in and kind of changed how, so, you know, so some bands, like some, some heavy metal, Mary, I don't, I know it's hard to believe, but some of it is goofy. What? I know it's hard to believe, but singing, you know, like a lot of them kind of took their, took a page from, from Led Zeppelin and sang about dragons and, mm-hmm. and sort of Lord of the Rings style wait, things. Wait, 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 hold on. Hmm? So this, you're saying these guys. Yeah. Like this this album that has like a skeleton soldier on the front of it? Killers? Yeah. It doesn't have a skeleton soldier, but okay, go on. What? It's just a guy. It's just a skeleton in the street. Like I a street like light. a soldier. You must be misinterpreting it. You may have had the wrong album. Because Eddie, Eddie appears on all their albums. That's, that's the name of that, that character. Is Eddie. Does he? Yeah. Oh. He is their, their mascot. When I saw them play live on the Number of the Beast tour in 1984, mm-hmm. he came out on stage, Mary, and blindly you know, kind of fumbled around on the stage right. amongst the band members, then then left the stage again. I did not get to see Paul Diano sing with Iron Maiden, though, unfortunately. I had to see Bruce, Bruce Dickinson, his replacement. Oh, yeah, he's in, like, a city. Yeah, it's just, like, a street scene with oh. the, him kind of looking at us. Is he holding a knife? Uh, he's holding an axe. Oh, an axe, that's right. Yeah, it. yeah. And it looks like there's someone pulling on his shirt. It's very much in the in the mode of, of... Well, I just remember, like, when I went to high school, there were so many student paintings around the school that drew from the, that kind of stuff as yeah. inspiration. They're like so many like demons yeah. and devils. Well, it reminds and... me of kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, it was a, every, style, everything. Like, but it was so weird. Like, it's a... on the walls of your high school. Yeah, that is like, weird. It just, see, it just felt weird. Like you walk into your high school Although... your first day, and there's like this big giant painting, like literally four by eight foot painting yeah. of of a demon hanging <laughs> in the hallway. Yeah. <laughs> on Let's the, be the fair. Stairwell. At Brookswood Secondary School, where I went, yeah. Um, we had an area of the school called the dungeon. Yeah. And it was like the hallway that had like the shop area in it. Okay. And uh, there was like little demon guys painted on all the walls. Sure, sure. But they're more like cartoony. Yeah. Now this was more like dramatic, like kind of like, like Eddie there, like yeah. painted in this very hyper-realistic or mm. attempted hyper-realistic style with a lot of veins and muscles. Right. And, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a there's a very good episode of um, Phineas and Ferb. Mm-hmm. Which I know I reference a lot, but it's a really good show. Yeah, and um, it's um, the whole or that it's like one of the they're like twenty two minute long episodes as opposed to two like eleven minute stories. Yeah, and um, the whole thing is it's um, 
like medieval times and they're all doing things but at the very end of the episode it's like a big battle and it has like a song that's supposed to be like a metal song okay over it and doesn't ever sound very metal but okay uh, and it's like narrating what's going on Mm. it's very funny I have a I have a fun record. Uh, it's part of the Wayfaring Strangers series. Okay. But it's called Warfaring Strangers. Right. And it's a bunch of metal bands from the early seventies that were just not you know like were recorded by you know funded by parents and other people mm-hmm. who put money up for these these albums that were recorded as one offs or self you know self then. Right. It's kind of cool just you know hear these albums and by these uh, fans of of uh, the metal of the time, which then morphed into the metal of this time that we're talking about. And so, yeah. So really, only Iron Maiden and Def Leppard came out of this scene with any kind of huge success. And I think Iron Maiden stayed truer to the roots of British heavy metal than Def Leppard did. Def Leppard took a very pop turn in the 80s. And then other bands from that time period, like Motorhead, would have been considered a a part of that, even though the players in Motorhead were very old compared to the other people in the scene. Okay. Like Lemmy had been playing him. He was in like the Rockin' Vickers and... And stuff like that in the in the in the sixties and in Hawkwind before he started before he joined Motorhead. So yeah, but it's very influential. Like um, like a lot of I think along with hardcore punk, uh, the new wave or new album was was um, responsible for like thrash metal and other extreme metal subgenres from that time period. You know that birthed bands like Metallica or Megadeth and mm-hmm. Pantera and all that stuff. So yeah, I think I mentioned it or hinted at it but i did not mention that um this was paul diano's last album as the vocalist with the group um he would be replaced by bruce dickinson on the next album and band lore i.e steve harris has said that diano's increasing reliance on alcohol and cocaine started to affect his stage performance and that was the reason he was moved on from the band. okay and diano has not denied that he was using but he said he said those guys are so boring you had to use in order to make it bearable. But he also has said that more, more of the conflict between him and Harris stemmed from Harris's um, dominance in songwriting mm-hmm. and that he wouldn't let anyone else, you know, put songs in on, to, you know, have, have say in songwriting. But this song, Killers, is a co-write between Steve Harris and Paul Diano. Oh, okay. And I have to say that I think that, you know, as a Iron Maiden connoisseur, which I am, of course, mm-hmm. I would say that I much prefer Paul Diano's singing style to... Bruce Dickinson's kind of more helium helium style. And, you know, like I just find that. And then the band took a turn after Number of the Beast, which I still think is a very good album. They, I think the next album was Peace of Mind. And I don't, I didn't like that album at all. I kind of like jumped off the bandwagon at that point and went my own way. But uh, up to that, up to the Number of the Beast, I was like a big proponent of, of Iron Maiden. Uh, and then I cut my hair and so- joined the enemy. Okay, let's do another song, Mare. Okay, what's our next song? This song is Morrissey. The song is a cover. It's called East West. And it came from his CD single, Ouija Board, Ouija Board, that came out in 1989. This is one of the B-sides to the single. So let's give it a listen, everyone. This is East West. All right. Let's hear it. East West Over the ocean Perpetual motion Traveling around No rest Singing and playing Night out and day Doing the round What a good life This must seem To Everything classic Nothing is tacky 
What do you think of uh, Morrissey's cover of East West? I thought it was fine. Oh, you didn't like it? No, I thought it was fine. Like, it's not my favorite Morrissey song. Okay. You know? Huh. Which what? would be Dagenham Dave. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really like the song a lot. It's uh, written by Graham Goldman. Okay. Of course, who, uh, as we all know, is a member of 10CC. Mm, yes. But also wrote one of the best 60s rock songs of all time, which is Look Through Any Window. Oh, by the Hollies. Yeah. yeah and nice. Bus Stop as well. Oh, really? And... Um, for Your Love, the Yardbirds did, mm-hmm. and this song for Herman's Hermits, as well as No Milk Today. Cool. Hey, he was a prolific songwriter in the early 60s. Weirdly, his career slowed down in the late 60s. He didn't have as many hits. He wrote mm. Pamela, Pamela for the Mindbenders, as I remember. And then he had like a time where he wasn't really getting any hits, mm. and he kind of lost his confidence. And he actually signed a contract with Kazanitz and Katz, okay. who were like, the big bubblegum producers in the United States. He signed a, a contract with them to produce songs for them. And so he had to go to New York and, and become a songwriter there, which he found very grueling. And he uh, started getting sick from that, oh, okay. from the stress of, of overwork. Right. They just drove you like a, like a slave. <laughs> but yeah, um, I don't know. I just, I, I like the song a lot. I, I think it uh, works well after Iron Maiden. It's kind of a little bit of a, um, a taste changer, a little bit of a palate cleanser. And like I said, it uh, was a B-side to Ouija Board, Ouija Board, which uh, it was more, I guess it was kind of, I don't know if it was considered filler, but there's two B-sides to to the CD single. There's um, Yes, I Am Blind, which is a Morrissey song. And then there's East West. And of course, the seven-inch single fe- did not feature East West. It featured the Morrissey song, you know, more royalties that way. But I think it's a demonstration of Morrissey's really good taste in sing- in covers, which he doesn't do a lot of. But when he does, you're like, oh, that's a really good cover that you chose. You know, like like the other one I'm thinking of is this song called Skinstorm, which is on Pregnant for the Last Time. That's a bad name. Skinstorm? Yes. 
it's not a great, but it's a great song. Right. By this group called Bradford, which is kind of an unknown group, but for whatever reason, Morrissey liked this song and he did a cover version of it. And it's a really great cover. So, yeah, I don't, I, uh, so yeah, like I said, it was originally released by Herman's Hermits in 66, the B-side of which was What is Wrong, What is Right? And it was in the top 40 in the UK and the US, but for whatever reason, Canada did not like it. We did not support East West. Oh, weird. Yeah. I wonder why. Well, it's, you know, it's funny because we have such an east-west divide in this country. <laughs> that's maybe that's why. Maybe it was that, too, too close to home. Too close to home, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there you go. All right, well, let's move on then. We all know who Morrissey is. We don't need to talk about him. Apparently, people don't like him anymore. Morrissey? Yeah. Mm, I think it's been around for a while. He's a little pretentious. Well, I think he's been saying things that people don't like as well. Mm. It was okay when he was saying that people who eat meat should be killed, but now that he's saying other other no, things... No, I think people didn't like that either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I think also his whole not coming to Canada because of like seal hunting mm. was pretty ridiculous. Hmm. I didn't know that. I mean, I did see him here, so he did come here once or twice. Yeah. I saw him twice actually. Oh, okay, that's what mom had told me hmm. that he wasn't. We wouldn't come to Canada because of seal hunting. That must be more recent. And I was like, "How else are this community going to get meat?" <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You can't get chicken in the, the Arctic, guys. No, like. And everything that's shipped up there is so expensive. Yeah. Because it costs so much money to ship everything up there. Yeah. It's like a box of diapers is like 50 bucks. Mm. Like how much do you think meat costs getting <laughs> shipped up there? You know? Too true. Although someone was telling me that they they had pizza, frozen pizza, that came from Germany. Huh. Doesn't that seem crazy? That does seem crazy. Like bringing it all the way from Germany. Yeah. That's weird. I was complaining about relish coming from India, hmm. which I thought was completely ridiculous in terms of carbon footprint and yeah. financial. But... You know, then you think about it, you go, well, it's in cans. It's not going to go bad. Yeah. You can ship like a gajillion of them in a mm-hmm. couple of containers. So. And like, yeah, if you look at the best before date on those things. There is no you best like before a date. five year. Yeah, that's right. There's, right? Like, there's really no best before date. Yeah. It's, you know. Yeah. Best You're before like, date. best before date, 2031. <laughs> <laughs> before, the, before the lid pops. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's all. All right. Let's go to our next song, dear. All right. What's our next song, Dad? I'm feeling the pressure because you need to you need to go. Oh, it's fine. We're not meeting up until 630. Um, this is a band that Mary does not like. This is Fleet Foxes. What? The song is Mykonos, which I've heard is her least favorite Hold Fleet on a Foxes second. song. It comes from the Sun Giant EP, which I've also not publicly, but heard her privately diss that many times. It ridiculous. came out in 2008, a year that Mary is also on record as having a strong dislike for. I'm pretty sure it came out in 2007. I got 2008 from my Wikipedia uh, research. Oh, okay. Maybe you're right then. And by the way, I know you don't, you don't like 2008 Mary, but you have to face the fact that this album came out in that year, which you've been heard publicly I... to make fun of and also call the dumbest year that has ever that existed. That is untrue. I made my first friend in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, this is this is the Fleet Foxes, everyone. Okay. Let's listen to uh, Mykonos while I, while I further quiz Mary about this friend she didn't make until... She's been around on this earth for 14 years. <laughs> no, grade 8, 13. 94, 2008. All right, let's give a listen, everyone.
I'm not going to ask your opinion on this song. Uh, group, I know you don't like them. I'm just going to tell you about Fleet Foxes. Dear. Okay, hold on a second. Yes. I played this song by Fleet Foxes. I don't think so. I did. Oh, I don't think so, dear. I did. You are well on record as saying Fleet Foxes, Patooey. No, Fleet Foxes, I love. They're a fantastic band. I really, really like them. Yeah. Um, And I played this song already. I know. And also, uh-huh. Dad, Yeah. Um, this is probably like one of my favorite songs of all time. Wow. I really like the song. It'd probably be in my top 10 songs of huh. all time. I remember one time picking you up at Trinity Western University, which is our local Christian university. One of our local Christian universities. One of our local Christian... Wait, is there another one? Bible College? That was uh, Colum- Columbia Bible College. Okay. The one which... Did I tell the you this? bad CBC. Did, yeah, did I tell you that, that story mm-hmm. about... Um, I was talking to someone at work, and she was saying that her husband was going to CBC for school. Okay. And I was like, what... Trying to figure out why is he going to radio Columbia Broadcasting Corporation? Like that's not or the Canada Broadcasting Canadian Corporation. Broadcasting like Corporation. why? How do you go to school there? Like, you would go to school to, at a university. Maybe he's interning. Is he interning? And studying like journalism or communications. Was he interning then, at it though? No, he was going to Columbia Bible College. But I was like, why would you think CBC was the first thing I would think of when you said like why do you think Columbia Bible College would be the first CBC I would think of? You're in the wrong municipality yeah although i did find out later that she was american ah so she had no idea about cbc probably not um yeah i know you like the, i know you like fleet fox but anyway i was gonna say we're at the i was there to pick you up because you were volunteering with some sort of uh, english esl mm-hmm. course or whatever yes and while i was there the song came up on the through the radio they were playing in the in the university oh. and i was like 
fleet foxes mykonos that's crazy well, but it sounded so great there it yeah. was like so refreshing to hear it yeah but you know um when i was in grade 12 yep the only person I'd ever met before who really liked Sufjan Stevens and Fleet Foxes and that kind of music yeah. was a girl who got married the next year and was very Christian. Hmm. So I think that it sort of became a bit more mainstream uh, there. Earlier. Well, maybe it became acceptable in Christian circles because they it's, felt it's, there was some... Because uh, because uh, Robin Pecknold is actually... I remember reading an interview with him when Fleet Foxes first came above ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember reading a Mojo magazine and he was talking about how... He was really influenced by this religious cult. Mm. Uh, there's the, the Mennonites. Put, no, not Mennonites, but they oh. put out this album, and he really liked it, and it really kind of influenced his writing and and the, their harmonies and stuff like that. Oh, as a okay, group. cool. So maybe that element of his music, where he was kind of borrowing religious imagery, right. and kind of bringing it to his songs. Yeah, maybe that because same with Sufjan, right? I mean, yeah. his songs aren't necessarily super Christian. No, but they borrow a lot of Christian iconography. Mm. And and so that that probably makes it acceptable. The same way that I had friends when I grew up who like went to church every night and twice mm. on Sundays, Oof. had to burn all of their records yeah. when their mom's mom's turn. Like found out about them. Their mom's got divorced and they went they went to a particular path. This is two separate families, not a family with gay moms. Yeah, this is two separate families. But yeah. both these guys had this experience, mm. and they both had to burn their records, but both were allowed to keep their Kansas albums mm. because Kansas had a song called "Dust in the Wind," which seemed to have like some sort of religious significance to it because it you know dust in the wind is like biblical quote related so so yeah it's really strange but yeah they had to burn everything else they owned but yeah i feel like fleet foxes and sufian kind of fits in with that like cool that like cool christian mennonite style of like downtown abbotsford okay right now which is all like cool bakeries and people wear like like big glasses and like yeah lots of like neutral colors and but they still hate gays they sure do (laughs) But they look like hipsters when they do it. Yeah, that's so, right. It's cool. Yeah. They're cool, so they're, it, they're cool homophobes. Yeah, it makes me feel okay to shop there <laughs> because it's so cute and they look like hipsters. But yeah. Yeah, you know. it's unfortunate. It is. It is. It's unfortunate. Not all of them are like that. Let's no, be, Let's be course. fair. There are liberal Mennonites who- I'm sure there are. Are working, they're working in the fields trying, yep. to, trying to spread the word. Yes. Keep it up, fellas yeah. and, fel- and fellettes. Yes. Fellets? I don't know. That doesn't sound so good, does it? No, it doesn't. It sounded good until I said it. <laughs> it sounded good in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> I came out of my mouth and I said, why did I say that? <laughs> Mary, did you know the Fleet Foxes are from Seattle? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Did you know they were formed by two friends? Two high school friends? Probably. I think I did all the same research you did when I talked about this song. One's name was Robin Pecknold. Uh-huh. The other's name was Skylar Skillset. Oh, yeah. And uh, Skylar Skillset, you know what he tells me? He tells me he's from Seattle. And that's because he has a Scandinavian name, mm, and yes. they have a huge Scandinavian population in Seattle. Is his name Skylar spelled traditionally or spelled like Skylar? Like S- it's spelled not not traditionally. Okay. It doesn't, it's not S C H U Y L A R. It is S K Y L A R. So people will not say Schuler for yes. the rest of his life, which you can't blame him. No, that's fair. You know, like the Dutch spelling of it or the, yeah. the European mm, spelling is not it's complicated. Always, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. And, and maybe scholar. and maybe Skylar is spelled that way is the Dutch way and maybe this is the the Scandinavian way. Right, maybe that's a possibility. Possible. I don't know. I don't know everything about everything. Yeah, just pretend that I do. Although I am pretty sure that S K Y yeah is the Anglic Anglicization Anglicization Anglis Anglicization Anglicization. That means we turned it into an Anglican religious yep. thing. Yeah. Oh, mighty Skylar. <laughs> Peace be with you, Skylar. Um. Yeah. So yeah, because you know there's Ballard. Right beside Seattle, it's pretty much like in it, in its day it was all Scandinavian. Oh yeah. If you weren't Scandinavian, you were sent to the border of the of the 
they, the town that town and, and send on your merry right. way right but yeah so there's a big because uh, of fishing yes. and also because of the of climate right it's very reminiscent of of uh their 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 former home in in a, in a near in a subarctic in, uh, climate makes sense so said, seattle woo uh, yeah, so I guess they basically did that thing that's weird to me, where they they decided at a young age they're going to take on particular roles. Hmm. So Robin Pecknell became singer songwriter, mm-hmm. and then Skelset became lead guitar player. Okay, and that's how they decided. They decided I'm going to be that, and you're going to be that. Oh, it's weird. Like then you're like, okay, I guess I have to become a songwriter. Oh yeah, I guess yeah. I guess the more logical way to do that is to be like, I'm good at this, and you're good at that. Yeah, yeah. Rather than being like, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah. You can do the other thing. It's true. Uh, so basically, they're the core of Fleet Foxes. Everyone else can come and go. Right. And everyone else has come and gone. Yes. But they are Fleet Foxes. Originally named the Pineapples. Cool. Fleet Foxes is better. But apparently there's another Pineapples okay. in Seattle. Yeah. So there's a bit of a... Fruit, kerfuffle? Bit of a fruit fight. Bit of a kerfuffle. A fruit fight? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Over the name of the... Or, or yeah, food a food fight. fight. Yeah, that would have been better. <laughs> would have been better. Well, I'm just doing terrible here with my fillets <laughs> and fruit fights. <sighs> I'm getting tired. My brain is giving up. Yeah, well, you only got, what, two hours of sleep last night? Mm, no. No. Five. It's not enough. Five and a half, maybe. It's not enough. It's good. Nope. You need to sleep more. Um, so my new campaign, Make Dad Sleep More. So Fleet Foxes was chosen by Robin Pecknell because he thought it sounded like a weird English activity like fox hunting. Yeah. But I also think it's... I like... Yeah, I it's evocative. Like, yeah, it is. Of like an old old English folk or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's what you kind of think I think about. it fits their sound better than the pineapples. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, I like the alliteration. Because pineapples does. makes me sound like they would be... Tropical in sound? Yeah. Do a lot of like mamba and stuff. Yeah, or even... Playing the ukulele? Yeah, or something like... um, what What's that called? Like a... Uh, Bongos? Nope. Like yacht rock. Oh, yacht rock. Yeah. The pineapples and yacht rock. Okay. Yeah. Either one of those seems more pineapples. Yeah. That's very not Fleet Foxes. So they're playing around town, mm-hmm. and they're kind of '60s inspired. Like they're very, very Beach Boys influenced, mostly from the Smile era, which is a very weird era of the Beach Boys to be influenced by. But they are. Why? If you listen to their first album, it's well because it wasn't really a successful. It, people, you have to really kind of search out Smile songs, right? Like you kind of got to be like. But I mean, like a music crate. You have to be kind of a music nerd to yeah. like figure that stuff out. It's one thing to like Pet Sounds. That's mm-hmm. like. That's like musical. That's like you know musical. What do you want to call it? Tastemaker or whatever. You're like right. you know you're 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 like you're pretty musical musically knowledgeable. Right. But to be into smile. Yeah. Well, that's music nerd. You're just like mm. fall. You've fallen right off the wagon. You're not. Right. Even, you've lost coolness. You're oh. just like right down there in the ditch oh. with all the other nerds. So you're telling me that I in there. that I shouldn't have heroes and villains on my um. No, you my should fit uh, playlist that yeah. I play at an exercise class when I run it at work. Do you play that time at work yeah. for for the ladies? Yeah. That must drive them crazy. And the gentlemen. That must that must drive them crazy. Uh, they don't really listen to the lyrics. Okay. One really, lady really likes ABBA. Mm. Um, I like ABBA. Me too. But she also said that she did not like the song um, Western Union. Oh, why? By the Five Americans. That's ridiculous. But I know. That's what I said to her. I said, Lonnie, I love this song. <laughs> um, why did she like it? I don't know. She didn't give you a reason? No. She just said she didn't like it. Well, that's not a good reason. No, I know. Um, I, hope you left, I hope you left it on. Oh, I did, of course. Yeah. I'm just changing it for her. Another <laughs> lady said to me, why do we always have to have that, that sound? I said, oh, the music? Yeah. She said, yeah. I said, well, other people like it. <laughs> I like it. But I mean, we're not just going to do exercise class totally silently. Yeah, Come this on. is weird. This is, the creaking bones would be definitely Yeah, right? Need to, need to drown it out. Oh, my God. This, Pre-COVID, I remember one of my one of my coworkers telling me, 
oh, I hugged this resident the other day and I could hear her bones when I hugged her. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yikes. She realized she broke three of them. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the woman we're talking about just turned 104 yeah. um, last, la- oh, a week ago now. Wow. She turned 104, so. Oh, good. good. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like I say, they had like a kind of 60s sound. And also that weird, and also kind of folk music, British mm-hmm. folk music was influenced. Um, Becknell's dad had sung in a local soul group in uh, Seattle. Oh, okay. So he had a musical background. He had, right. And so I think he had like musical taste or musical pretensions. The, um, Pecknell's sister, sister's name was Asia, as if she's a Steely oh, Dan Steely Dan, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So this local producer, this guy named Phil Eck. But wait, was it spelled like Asia? Like AJ? Yeah, AJ. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this guy named Phil Eck Seems like such an unfortunate... Them. Why? Spelling of oh, the name. Oh, because it's going to be Aja? Everyone's going to say Aja? Yeah. I think people know Asia pretty well from this I don't song. think so. It was a pretty popular album. Yeah. To a certain demographic. Yeah. So teachers are going to know. They're going to be pronouncing it properly. Yeah. It's going to be the kids who have trouble with it. But then yeah. they hear the teacher say it. So then it's But fine. I mean, um, I used to work for a woman whose name was spelled like that. Okay. And I wrote her name like that. And one of her coworkers said, who's this? And I was like, her. I like, pointed at her. She's like, standing next to me. She's like, that's me. She's like, that's how you spell your name? It's like yeah, she worked there for like I don't know, like four years at that point. But she she was not she was not English as a first language. She was. She was. Yeah. Oh. She was older. Oh, okay. She was probably in her six fifties. Then she should know who who Celia Dan were in Asia was. Yeah. That's right in her wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. You'd think, but maybe she like the residents don't d- doesn't listen to that rock and roll. Yeah, doesn't listen to rock and roll. That like doesn't listen to that, like that rock and roll like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so with Eck, they recorded an EP mm-hmm. called Fleet Foxes, mm-hmm. and then they started recording their debut album. Wait, their debut album was called Fleet Foxes? Yeah. Oh. But their EP is also called Fleet Foxes. Oh. So they started recording their e- but they didn't have any money. Right. But their EP is also called Sun Giant. That's a different EP. Oh, okay. So they, uh, they did, they recorded their album, but they didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. So they had a little bit of studio time, but most of it was recorded in their own apartments. Cool at Pecknold's parent in Pecknold's parents' basement. Right. So just catch on an, catch on can, an iPhone in a motel in Oregon. That's, oh no, wait, that was Sofia. <laughs> but wherever they were, they just kind of yeah. yeah, sat down and, and did something. And but yeah, so then uh, based on interest in that album, and they started getting interest from other labels. Right. And so they got signed to Sub Pop cool. Records in Seattle. Because Sub Pop is still looking for the band to be Nirvana for them. So they're yes. always looking for that Nirvana. And so Fleet Foxes were probably the closest to Nirvana they've ever got since mm. since Nirvana. Yeah. Unfortunately, they didn't know that Robin Pecknold would not stay the course and would kind of like wither and wander in right. his interest and his, his, and his um, what's what I'm looking for, his commitment to, to being a, in a band. Right. So he, uh, so they they got some money from, from the label. So they decided they're going to do a, an EP as a tour souvenir because they're going to go on a big tour. Kind of with the release of the album, they're going to be having a tour, so they wanted right. to have they wanted to have some stuff to they to get, sell to sell the yep. show. So they they got this they got Sun Giant Sun Giant EP. So that came out actually before their first album came right. out, the Sun Giant EP. And it was going to be only tour. It was going to be tour only, but then fan demand was such yeah. a pitch that they had to like release it to you know make make it. Which makes sense because it's really good. Yeah, and it has this yeah. absolutely fantastic song. What was funny though is that at this point the band had no manager. And no legal representation. And so Pecknell's sister, who we talked about Asia or Aja, uh, she took over as band manager. And there you go. That's my little my little potted history of Fleet Foxes, Mary. And I got to tell you right now, it was better than yours. What? Because mine, you're, you didn't tell me that they were called the pineapples. Well, 
Maybe I did. I think that's um, important. But I just want to say quickly yep. that on Spotify, uh-huh. Mykonos is um, their most pop, their most played song. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think it's very popular. It's been used a lot in things. People know it. Their listing is weird though. On because on Spotify it has the first five, the first most five popular songs. Yeah. Right. But number one has sixty-five million. But then number two is Mykonos and it has one hundred and fifty-four million. Wow. One hundred and fifty million listens. Yeah. They probably got a dollar fifty four for that. Oof, Spotify's terrible. I don't know if that's true. That's probably got, they got more than that. They probably got a, a couple hundred dollars for that, but that's not much. No. <laughs> not much for one hundred fifty four million. Oh, you know what fans also like? Yeah, is the Shins. Yeah. Grizzly Bear. Yeah. Band of Horses. Sure. Beirut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Others, but I like all those groups. Yeah, I didn't list any that I didn't know or that I knew you didn't like. <laughs> All right, Mary, we're at our penultimate song. Our penultimate song. You know what, Dad? Yeah. I think I often don't like your penultimate songs. Well, you know why? Why? Because I always choose a weird song to be the penultimate song. True. Because that is the place that you put your weirdest track. Okay. Is the second to last song on an album. That is always the case. Hmm. Because it is basically your throwaway position. Right. Like you can just do whatever you want there and it doesn't matter what other people think. Because you don't care. I guess that's true. You've got enough goodwill. And I got to tell you, Mary. Uh Uh-huh. I was going to say this when we started. I guess it's true. You People aren't going to turn turn it off the last, the second to last, yeah, last song. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And every album, and that's what's weird about the album uh, Help by the Beatles, is that Yesterday is the second to last song on that album. Hmm. And that's weird because that is normally the throwaway position. But what that tells you is that song was held in a very ambivalent way by the Beatles at that time. Right. They didn't think of it as a Beatle-y song. They thought oh, okay. it was sort of a weird one-off that was not was kind of they weren't really would wouldn't really pursue right which wasn't necessarily true but that's at the time when they did it they were very kind of ambivalent about the song i and mean maybe that maybe it's placing on the album reflects that i mean i don't know I, like yesterday i think it's a good song but it's not like one of their top songs in my mind or anything it is the most covered song by the beatles is it yeah by do, far do you by think, far do you think that's be- it is not the most popular song on the beat by the beatles on say spotify right that is here comes the sun right but that, people we've talked about that mixes. seasonally yeah. blah blah yeah. blah but like do you think that that's because it is a more simplistic vocal and guitar led song i think it's a song that could be sung by anyone yeah in any genre yes and not and not offend mom and dad yeah yeah, I do think that's the case. Because, like, yeah, like, I think like Spotify's most popular song, it being the most covered song is not necessarily indicative of it being their best oh, song. Oh, yeah, no, no, I would I would agree with you. It's not being... Yeah. Like, for example, in the movie yesterday, mm-hmm. it's played by that guy just, like, playing it on his guitar, singing with his friends, mm-hmm. hanging out, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, it, like, worked in that scenario because it's just, like, playing yeah. guitar and singing, right? It's, like, you don't have yeah, other stuff you have to do. It's kind of a throwaway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like I I can understand them putting it in that spot. Hmm. Okay. And I wonder if without the song yet or without the movie yesterday, people would know it as much, you know? Well, I think it's pretty well known. I think it's hard. I just can't imagine the Beatles being unknown. Well, known, but a lot of their songs are unknown. Yeah. yeah you know, sure. like yeah. if you said to someone, do you like the song Maxwell Silverhammer? They <laughs> well, would say, that's pretty, what? That's a pretty extreme example. Yeah. It's a pretty extreme example. That's what I'm saying. But if they said Octopus's Garden, they go, oh yeah, I saw that in Sesame Street. Would they? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know anymore. It's hard to tell generationally yeah. how things travel. And their silly decision to not let their songs be used in commercials mm-hmm. is also affecting them. Yes. True. Let's move on to a song well, you know what, that Mary has hinted Dad, she does not like. What's Dad, that? you know yeah. what? Yeah. They didn't want to sell out. False Bringing idea. it around. It's a false idea. Bringing it around. They did sell out. They did sell out and they sold out with full knowledge when they started their careers. They sold out with the fullest of knowledge. Hmm. And and John Lennon would, was, you know, very upset with 
Brian, Brian Epstein that he did not sell out better for them. Right. You know, so, yeah, they sold out with full knowledge. That's that's garbage. But let's go move on to the song, just, Mary, that you have hinted okay. in the broadest possible way Right. that you do not like this song. I was just setting it up. I'll say for failure. Okay. Well, what's the song? This is The Move. Mm-hmm. The song is Curly. Mm-hmm. It was a, a single only. Okay. It's not a non-album single. Oh, interesting. From 1969. Okay. So let's give it a listen, everybody. song mary actually told me she loved this song thought it was great and she but she doesn't want to speak about it right now i do want to speak she about want, it no no I, don't change your mind now I, mary. no i do actually want to don't sp- change I your mind i have some now. things i would like to say about okay, this song you, you can say your things about this song. i would like to say yeah that this song yeah really turned me around why because when i started i didn't like it and then i liked it by the end oh really by the middle i liked it actually oh, why why i didn't like the flute at first the recorder yeah or the recorder yeah um and but yeah, by the middle, I was humming along and like nodding my head. <laughs> you know, it's a really catchy song. It is very catchy. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you liked it. That's good to hear. I was just saying, I often don't like the penultimate songs. Yeah. But this week, I liked it. That's, that's great. That's what I was trying oh, to say. That's a great setup. 
thanks for turning it around on me. Yeah, you're welcome. That's fantastic. Well, I'm really, I'm really pleased that you liked it. Good. I, I do like the song a lot. Yeah, it's why good. it's on this. Uh, yes, makes sense. And I was really getting into a particular style of music at this time that I didn't really knew existed. Which was? Uh, Toy Town Psych. Oh, right. Yes, we've talked about Toy, mm-hmm. Toy Town Psych. And I just kind of, I kind of fell into it because I was, out of curiosity, I was researching um, the band The Light. No, sorry, The David, who did the song. It's funny that you forgot the name of... <laughs> my, own, my own name. Yeah. <laughs> the the song the by The David, which is... Um, what's the song called now? Open Your Eyes? What is that? Open Your... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and so I was just kind of out of curiosity. Like, I was just wondering, before I started this show, I was like, could I find out information about this really obscure uh, band from the 60s? And so I was just kind of looking up stuff, and I found this website called Marmalade Skies, which sadly is now gone. I was went there a little while ago to, to, to read up their Toy Town site collection and it was gone and I was like oh that is so sad and so yeah I um I yeah now it's like a uh a placeholder site that sells stuff yeah yeah so I don't like that either placeholder site that sells stuff yeah it's like it's like waiting for someone to buy the domain name but in the meantime we are have ads on it oh yeah it's like a chum bucket yeah i guess that's what they I don't want to call it it's like a... you know when you're on like a news site or whatever and you scroll into the bottom yeah so like local doctors hate her oh yeah yeah and yeah. like find these five crazy child actors who grew up to be ugly or whatever <laughs> it's called the chum bucket okay that's I, think there's, I think there's nicer names for it too, yeah but yeah. i prefer no, that's chum bucket a, that's a because it's what they are yeah that's a good name so yeah so so yeah, I didn't. I never heard about Toy Town Psych before. I stumbled on the site and, and I was reading about it. And I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting." And then they had like the collection, but it was it was um it was all dead. The links were all dead. And so then I I found an email address, and so I wrote to the person and asked if they could send me send me uh if they could upload it for me and send me the link. And they did. So I got all these songs, so I could hear, listen to all these that's cool Toy Town Psych songs and. Yeah, I just fell in love with with so many songs, and so a lot of them appeared around this time in 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 the uh, or if not before in this series because I just I had got so into it, and so this song is kind of like the mo- one of the most commercial bands, like one of the most successful bands to embrace it, I think, because uh, the Move, this is who this is, is uh, one of the most popular British groups to never like break the U.S. Like they never made it in America. Oh, really? But I think because they were so so very British. And yeah, they just made no dent in America at all. Hmm. They had nine. They had nine top twenty singles in the in the UK. And none in the US. And no, nothing in the US. Oh. Yeah, but I mean, uh, yeah, it's none in Canada either. None in Canada either. But uh, yeah, so they're basically like a Birmingham supergroup because they were. Uh, the name refers. The name the move refers to the fact that these band members made the move to join to join together as a group, and so they came out of like Carl Wayne and the Vikings. A group called the Night Riders and another group group called the Mayfair Set all came together to make this new band. Never heard of any of these bands. No, you shouldn't because they're all like local Birmingham bands. Um, so the single came in like a really transitional time for the move. So um, at this point, the band consisted of Carl Wayne on vocals. Mm-hmm. So he's the singer. Roy Wood, who wrote all the songs, if not, I would say most, if not all of the songs that the move did, he wrote. Uh, he's on lead guitar, recorder acoustic guitar, mellotron and backing vocals. He's one of those disgusting people who can play a whole bunch of instruments. Oh yeah. Ugh. He could also play cello. Talented people. Play piano. So rude. Play banjo, you know, played uh, saxophone, just all kinds of stuff. He just taught himself to play these things. And then uh Rick Price was on bass and then Bev Bevan's on drums. So Sorry? uh Bev Bevan was the drummer. 
And now original member and co-founder Ace Kefford, who was a bass player in the group. Oh, I heard a name the other day. Yeah. Mary Merrington. Mary Merrington. I actually like that name quite a bit, actually. Mm -hmm. That's a good name. Yeah, I can't remember where I heard it. Reminded me of my prof, Charles Charles. That's not a good name. That seems like cruelty to me. Mm. But Mary Merrington's like a very, has a very real ring to it to me. Because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not Mary Mary. No. It's Mary Merrington. So that mm-hmm. has a rhyming kind of ring. So I was going to say Ace Kefford. Uh, unfortunately, he had a nervous breakdown. Oh. That he, he had, was later uh, diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But of course, this would have been undiagnosed in the 60s. Right. So, you know, he just had this incredible, you know, they're touring all the time. And then... Uh, he was taking LSD and he just had like a breakdown and he started having panic attacks. So he left the group in 68. And the original guitarist, Trevor Burton, then moved to bass. And so, but he left before the recording of Curly because he was so unhappy with this turn that the band's songs were taking into this very poppy material, which is weird to me because all of their songs to this point sound poppy to me. Right. Like, I don't care if you listen to Fire Brigade I can hear the grass grow, Blackberry Way. They all sound poppy. Like they're not like hard rock songs. It's so weird. It's the same with. It's the same reason that the original bass player left the Kinks. Hmm. Uh, Pete, Peter, whatever his name was, he left the 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 Kinks because he thought he found the music was too poppy and he thought it was boring to play. Hmm. And so he left. Interesting. And you're like, well, I guess it was less rocky than like the first three singles you did. But by the time you were doing like face to face. The songs all sounded like this. There's no yeah. difference between these songs. Like, anyway, whatever. I can't argue with the guy. He's dead. Um, so, yeah, he left. And then he, um, like I say, he was unhappy. So Rick, play- Rick Price replaced him. And then Burton went on to work in, like, blues groups, which sounds like a terrible idea to me. And then uh, this was the last song also to feature Carl Wayne on vocals. He also left the group after this single because... Um, he was moving in a more middle-of-the-road direction. Like, he was more interested in, like, pursuing a career in cabaret singing. Like, in England, which is a bit different, it's kind of like cl- clubs. Like, let's say nightclub singing. Right. And lounge singing. And lounge singing. In opposition to what Roy Wood wanted to do, which was to move into a more progressive rock direction and kind of stretch out more. Which I can see why Carl Wayne wouldn't like that. He didn't play an instrument. So as a singer, you know, and the band's playing like a seven-minute-long solo stuff, what are you doing? Like, just thumping a tambourine against your side. against yeah. the Or leaving the stage. So, and then Ray Wood was also devising the idea of ELO at this point, the Electric Light Orchestra, which is the group he co-founded with Roy, with Jeff Lynn uh, during the time of, of the move. And so, um, yeah. So, like I say, the single was inspired by the light psychedelic style of the late 60s that was subsequently named Toy Town Psych. Obviously, kind of like Sunshine Pop. It wasn't called that at the time. It was just given the name by fans later on. And so heavily heavily influenced by the Beatles, which you can hear in like the recorder in this song, which of course the Fool on the Hill uses the recorder in its sound. And then uh, Mark Virtz's excerpt from a teenage opera, which was like a huge hit at the time and really influenced a lot of the the subject matter of, of Toy Town Psych, which is ordinary people with their ordinary jobs and their ordinary lives, a lot of ordinary stuff, people like gardeners and newspaper salesmen and business people and park custodians and zookeepers. All this stuff became a, a songwriter uh, fodder. Right. But it was a sound that was more popular in theory than in practice. So mm. there's a lot of people who tried to put out popular Toy Town Psych songs, but only a few of them really caught fire. And, and this song didn't crack the top 10 for the first time in a while for the move. So I only got to number 13, which is pretty good, but not yeah. not a top 10 song. So there you go. That's the move, Mary. I'm glad you like the song, though. Yeah, it's a fun song. I think it's very good. 
and yeah, I can see why like the recorder would seem annoying at first, but then you realize how how it fits into the song as it goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of double tracked as well, so there's a few recorder things going on. Um yeah, it's very good. Okay. Let's go to our final song, everybody. This is we're gonna end with Beck. Beck. From his album Mutations, which came out in nineteen ninety eight. This song is called Diamond Bollocks. Here we go.
All right, and we're back. And Mary, what did you think of this? Well, I thought that song sounded like Back too. Okay. <laughs> there you go. That ties into uh, Plateau. Yeah. I-, I like the song. Yes. It's a good song. I, I don't. I can't imagine too many people wouldn't like this song. Yeah. Except for people at the people at the old age home. Yeah, that's fair. And crabby people like my mom. Yeah. Um, very similar level there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, at about two minutes in, yeah. it turns into a Halloween song for a little bit too. What's that? How do you mean? It like, oh, sounds it like sounds, Halloween. It sounds like well, it sounds like the Adams Family or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds has like a, Halloween. Has a Vic Mizzy harp harpsichord mm-hmm. bit going on. Yeah. The harpsichord kind of. It makes it gives gives it kind of a at some point it's a sunshiny pop sound right and at times yeah it does kind of creep over into yeah, a t- Halloween TV monster family <laughs> yeah. theme song yeah so now Beck he started off his career with Great Guns he obviously like had a store a store of songs that he had written and he just wanted to like vomit them out at right us. and I remember seeing an interview with him when he on Much Music when he was first started out. And he was like this like super hyperactive kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was my age, but he was felt like a, I was felt like a, like watching a teenager because he was right. like could barely sit still. Oh yeah, he kept like playing songs for this poor interviewer, <laughs> like trying to show all these songs that he had written and stuff yeah. like that. And she's trying to keep like let's stay on the conversation of this. Yeah, you know, you got this big hit song called "I'm a Loser" that's just come out, and yeah. that's kind of like oh no, but I got these other songs, and they're like <laughs> he's so excited, and so um, yeah, so in the first two years of his career, he produced four albums. Oof. In uh, 1994 alone, he had three albums. Right. So he did Golden Feelings in And he also in put out a book called The Bectionary. Did he? No, it was a Futurama joke. Oh, okay. Did not get it. Oh. Sorry. There's an episode of Futurama. I saw it once. I saw the episode once, man. Where Bender joins up with Beck. Yeah, and I know. Beck wrote The Bectionary, which is all of his made up words, and he uses it to write his songs. It's called The Bectionary. <laughs> okay. His name's Beck, but it's like a dictionary. But yeah, it's yeah. Beck. His name's Beck. I don't know. Does he, does he have that many made up song names? Although I was just going to say that his next. Odelay is is that it's not made up, is it? Well, not. Isn't like a yodel, like a odelay? Well, I don't think they call it an odelay. Yeah, but I mean, yodel. but I mean, it's like written as part of like the like a spelling it's out of a yodel. Yeah, about an odelay. Right. Uh, but here you go, stereopathetic soul manure. That's kind of a Bectionary right there from 1994, mm-hmm. Mellow Gold 1994, mm-hmm. One Foot in the Grave 1994, mm-hmm. and then he went into the long gestation of Odalie, mm-hmm. which took a long time to make because that was a very layered album with a lot of samples, right, and a lot of like hip hop stylings on yeah. it, and so that took two years to get together, I guess, and then so that came out, and then he had to go on a tour because that was a big album, right. So then he was touring for a long time, mm-hmm. and basically he put out one single in two years, a single called Dead Weight. And then he, uh, in 1998, he was kind of like, you know what? I'm doing an album. I don't care what you guys say. And Geffen, if you don't want me to do this album, you know, actually what I'm going to do, Geffen, I'm going to do a really quick album and I'm going to put it on a different record label. And Geffen said, okay, that's fine. So he was going to do this album really fast and he was going to release it on a, a label called called Bongload. Apparently, yeah. Odelay is a phonetic English rendering of the Mexican slang interjection orale, which translates roughly to listen up or what's up. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what he's using it. Yeah, that's right. from Odalay. What do I know? Yeah. What do I know, everyone? I thought it was a yodel. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm white. Um, so yeah, so the goal, Mary, was to record the material as quickly as possible. And so Beck, he compiled a bunch of songs that he had like written like over time, like the last few years, and he kind of got them all together. And sort of keeping with the with the low key intent, he wanted to release it on Bongload. And then, uh, and then he kind of like. Kind of, I don't feel like he 
didn't really follow through on his idea because he, then he brings in big time producer Nigel Godrich, who had been producing Radiohead and, and was, you know, a big name. But he brought him in and then Beck and his band recorded 14 songs in 14 days, although the album only has 12 songs. Uh, so, yeah, because the album and so the album is totally different in style than Odele, you know, it's just that it's just like straight, really good musicians just playing like songs together in the studio. Yeah, cool. Now, the name of the album, Mutations, was said at the time to be a nod to uh, the Osmatanches, who kind of had been revived at this time and had come back into interest. And there's a song on the album called Tropicalia, which kind of further cements that idea. Cool. Although the song Tropicalia is more samba-inspired with sort of an overlay of like Moog synth sounds and stuff. Oh, okay. I don't really think it's very, I don't think it's very Mutanches sounding this record. It doesn't really have like a rock sound to it, except for this one song. So now, on the original CD, Mary, Diamond Bollocks isn't even listed on the album. Really? It took me a long time to find out what this album was, the song was called, actually. I didn't even know how I found it. Maybe when I was looking on Wikipedia one time. Hmm. Because it's a hidden track. Oh. So you listen to the final song of the album, which is called Static. Okay. And you listen to that song, and it ends. Yeah. And then 58 seconds later, Diamond Bollocks starts. That is is an appropriate amount of time. It's an annoying amount of time to wait for a song to come on. It's better than on some things. Yeah. I feel like, like, isn't the local rabbits one? You have to wait a couple minutes. You have to wait like 11 minutes, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. That's why I just fast forward to it. No, I just skip it. I'm done. <laughs> Last song. I'm out of there. Sorry. Sorry, secret hidden song. I'm never going to listen to you. I don't have, I don't have the, the patience. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the song, which I think I would call a psych pastiche with elements of grunge and electronic kind of added on top of it Mm -hmm. which is kind of tropicalia in that way because tropicalia is like a layering of influences right um so apparently the song began as kind of a cure for all the slow songs on the album okay so a lot of slow waltz like the three four time songs right and so um so the you know the band so you know the band kind of used this song as a sort of like a a palate cleanser you know kind of just way to get things excited in Mm -hmm. the studio so they used previous Beck songs as a sort of jumping off point, and then the band jammed uh, kind of several different sections, and then they were all edited together into the final song. So the song goes like this, Mary. Mm-hmm. Begins with what I would think of as a sunshine pop harpsichord intro played by Jellyfish's Roger Manning. Okay. Friend of Jason Faulkner, who toured with Beck. Anyway. Friend of Jason Faulkner. Yeah. Who I'm friends with on Facebook. <laughs> there you go. You are a friend of Jason Faulkner. I'm a friend of a friend of Beck. There you go. Uh, then it moves into the hard rock riff with Joey Warren Curtis crashing and, bang- and banging on the drums. Uh, the riff is recycled from a Beck song called Mega Boob, which was written in 1994, mm-hmm. uh, but appeared on the soundtrack, I think in 95 or 96, for a movie called Bury Me in Kern County. Okay. So kind of an obscure movie. It's kind of an obscure soundtrack, but this is where the song originally appeared. So he he reuses the riff that do 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 do. Uh, he reuses that riff, and then wait adds... that do 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 do. No, that's that's something else. I think. Yeah. Um. Then he uses lyrics from a song called "Erase the Sun," mm-hmm. which were was a leftover track from Odelay that appeared as a B side for the single "Dead Weight" that we mentioned earlier. Okay. So he kind of combined those two things into this section of the song. Right. Then we. Have a brief pause to listen to birds tweeting. Okay. Then we go back into this very grungy bass solo. Okay. That adds that, uh, played by Justin uh, Meldal Johnson, mm-hmm. with Manning's, yes, as you say, Vic Mizzy style harpsichord. Halloween part. And some Mike Deasy style fuzz guitar, which also kind of adds to a Halloween. 60s style Halloween kind of sense. Yeah. Which I would refer to as sunshine grunge. Okay. Halloween part. Then we get to 
uh, a Moog synthesizer playing. Okay. Well, Beck intones a quote from Hank Williams, I heard the lonely uh, whistle blow. Mm -hmm. And then we get that kind of noise section as well. Then the song returns to the Megaboob riff and an ending verse. Then we get the harpsichord section with some more lyrics from Erase the Sun. Then we get a little bit more of the heavy rock riffing, and then it ends with a synth string coda. So the song was actually originally planned to be the second song on the album, but then Bick decided to move it to the end as a hidden track because the song, he said, while part of the record is, to quote, the wayward son of the Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving dinner who just doesn't really fit in with the family anymore. So you put him at the end of the table. Hmm. After the album was completed, Geffen, this is classic Geffen, Mary. Mm-hmm. Changed their minds and reneged on the deal and released the records themselves. Released the record themselves. Classic. So Beck filed a lawsuit against Geffen, and it was a long lawsuit, and the outcome of which is still unknown, undecided. I don't hmm. know if they've stopped or if it's just sitting there doing nothing. Will people forget about it? Who knows? And now the other interesting thing I learned was that the cover photo on the album of Beck tangled up in shrink wrap mm-hmm. was taken by Autumn DeWild. Oh, cool. Director of the uh, film Emma. There you go. Cool. Yeah. So that's the that's the uh, end of that mix mix CD, Mary. Did you think that it kind of got better? It kind of it kind of went into at an upward from the first side. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely like this side more. Mm-hmm. Mm. I liked pretty much all the songs on this side. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, I mean, I liked songs on the first side too, but but I thought I thought it really like picked up in the second yeah, half. Yeah, I would I definitely re- agree. Yeah. Which it should do. It should like be an exciting trip to the yeah. end anyway. So it kind of works as in that way anyhow. Yeah, I, I was really happy with it, actually, in the end. Uh, there's maybe one song on it that I, I thought was okay. On the whole album or on the second side? On the whole on the whole album. Which one? Which was Golden Days by Belladere. Oh, okay. And, but I wouldn't take it off. Like, I still think it's a good song. I just, I just you know, I'm, I'm, I just kind of wonder now if future, if present me would have chosen what right. past me chose. And probably not. But that's fine. I, I don't think it's bad. I just, it just, maybe it's not my favorite one on there. Right. Yeah. And if I was redoing it, if I said, oh, I'm going to re-edit this album, I would probably... Take it off, but mm. other people like it. So what do I know? Yep. So there you go. Cool. But you you thought it was you thought it got better overall. Yes. Your, your review. I would say so. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, if you want to um, tell people how they can write to us if they want to. Oh yeah. Um, sneakydragon.com. Yep. Sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Okay. For email. Yep. On Twitter at sneaky underscore dragon or on Facebook at sneaky dragon. That is all true. Yeah, and then you can also find our our mailing address on sneakydragon.com. That's true. Go to the contact us um, part in the menu bar. I think that's yeah. what they call it. And you can probably find our email there too, huh? Find our email and find everything there. Yeah. 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 If you just click on the link, it'll automatically open your email on your computer. Nice. It's a weird thing. It's convenient. Weirdly invasive. Is it? I don't know. It's kind of weird. How does it have access to your... I think it just links to it. It links it? to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's curious. So. Mm. Well, there we go. Well, Mary, thank you for taking part in this uh, extravaganza. Was it a... I think I thought it was just a normal episode. Oh, right. It's our 50th. It's our 50th. Oh, we're well. celebrating that we're 50 years old as a show. Didn't really do anything. So I guess it's okay. <laughs> Didn't really do anything. No. Maybe we'll do something in four episodes when it's our two yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do something better and different. Mm, we won't. Nah. Let's be real. Let's just get this over with. Yeah. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. We do appreciate your kind attention. And we'd love to hear from you. So please do write us. And we will... Be doing in a little while uh, another record, or no record, another letters show. Yeah. And we want uh, letters from you to read on the air. So yes. do not hesitate to write and tell us what you think of our music, our tastes, our concepts, our thoughts, yep. our opinions, yep. our needs, yep. our neediness. Yep. All those things are, are ripe for your comments. Yes. So uh, 
We look forward to hearing from you. Yeah. And we will see you in a... Fortnite. Fortnite. In a fortnight. We'll see you in two weeks, which is a fortnight. There's no other word for it. Did, did you know that? There's no other word for two weeks from now? Just fortnight? We'll see you in a bivalve. <laughs>